doctors don't have a clear understanding of it. It started opening up my mind to like, how does the human body work? This is a real thing that really affects people. This is a major pain. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Dr. Chris Fowler, a pain researcher with his PhD in clinical health psychology. We talk about the nature of chronic pain itself, how it can impact every aspect of someone's life, affecting not just your body, but your mental health and your relationships. And as you hear in this conversation, he and I are actually old friends. We were very close friends back in San Diego. And as we got to talking about how chronic pain can affect your relationships, we discovered that our relationship, our friendship, had been severely affected by my history with chronic pain. It was kind of incredible that we captured this moment inside of this conversation about chronic pain, where we realized that we had had a fundamental misunderstanding and miscommunication around my own chronic pain and my own health flare-up back when we were hanging out all the time. And it's a perfect illustration of how important it is, as someone with chronic pain, to communicate what you're experiencing to the people that you're closest to. You know, we talk a lot about invisible illness on this show, about suffering with something that other people can't necessarily see. And a big problem with that is that they can't see it. They don't know what you're experiencing. And if you don't know how to communicate it, there's no way for them to know what's going on in your body. So, we don't just talk about that in theory in this episode. We realized that we had experienced it ourselves. And it was a pretty powerful moment that I feel really lucky to have captured. We also talk about the future of chronic pain management and the research that Dr. Fowler is doing into virtual reality as a tool to manage chronic pain. I felt so lucky to record this episode, not just because we have such a knowledgeable expert to talk to about something that matters so deeply to the people that listen to this show, but also just to catch up with an old friend that I hadn't talked to in a long time. And we talked for a long time. We talked for almost three hours, and as I mentioned in last week's episode, I was considering breaking this up into two podcasts, and I asked for some feedback about that. I got some mixed feedback as to whether or not people wanted this broken up or all in one episode, so what I've decided to do is release it all at once and then not put out an episode next week. So, my thought about this is that I don't want to uh, overburden anyone with too much content at once. I know a lot of us out there are chronically ill and maybe can't chew off a whole three-hour podcast at once. So, I want to give you a full two weeks to listen and digest this podcast because there's so much good stuff in here. And I actually tried to split this in half, but I couldn't find a good place to do it. It, it all just flowed so well into the next topic and there wasn't really a good place to break this in half. So, I feel like the best thing to do is to give it all to you at once and then just give you an extra week to go through this podcast and listen to it. So, there will not be a new show next week and we'll just have a double episode this week. Then we'll be back with a great episode featuring Elizabeth talking about histamine intolerance, extreme allergies, food sensitivities, and environmental sensitivities, something that I can really relate to as someone who's extremely sensitive to mold. It was a great conversation. And then the week after that, we'll be back with Laura talking about social anxiety, especially pertinent in the time of COVID, when a lot of us have been in isolation and maybe our social muscles have atrophied. I think this is a common thing right now where people trying to go back out into the world are experiencing some social anxiety that they hadn't experienced before. So, we have someone that's been dealing with social anxiety for a long time who's done a ton of research about it and a lot of work, a lot of self-work, self-reflection, uh, had a lot of great tips, like real specific tips for people dealing with social anxiety for things to try. So, I've recorded a lot of great stuff coming up in the next couple weeks. Um, so, don't be surprised. There will be no show next week. I want to give you two weeks to listen to this massive episode today, and then we'll be back with great shows coming up after that. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you will consider supporting us on Patreon. I'm so grateful to everyone who's already signed up to support the show. And I'll take this moment to thank Steve Cavanaugh, our Patreon producer, who helped to produce this episode of the podcast. I'm hoping to turn this podcast into a career. I would love to make this a full-time job. I love what we're building here. I feel very passionate about it and about continuing it, and I need your help to do so. So head over to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. We now have gifts for our patrons. Uh, my mom helped us to create some amazing gifts, some tote bags and some coasters with the Major Pain logo on them. There's a lot of information and pictures on the Patreon if you want to check it out. And monthly subscriptions start for as little as $2 per month. So head over to patreon.com slash Podcast to check it out. There is a link in the description of this podcast, or you can head to our website, majorpainpodcast.com and click the support tab to find all the information about how you can support this show. To our current patrons, I am thrilled and so grateful that you are already supporting this show. It means so much. And I'm I'm so thrilled to bring you this episode today. This one really um, came out of nowhere for me. I, I had no idea that one of my closest friends from back in San Diego was a pain researcher. <laughs> and I just, I just can't believe that this happened. I'm so lucky to be able to share this with you. And I feel like Dr. Fowler is a great resource for us as a community. We talk about this at the end of the podcast, but he's very open to anyone writing into the show, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com with questions for him. If there's something that you want to know from a pain researcher, let us know, send your questions to me and I will forward them to him. Something to keep in mind as you listen to this episode. I also want to warn you that we had a little bit of technical trouble uh, in the beginning of this episode. We lost a few words that uh, Fowler was saying, but I'm happy to report that we switched computers about 20 minutes into this conversation and the rest of it sounds really clean and really clear. We didn't miss any more words after that. So uh, if you get frustrated in the beginning of this conversation when we lose a few words here and there, not to worry, we do fix that problem pretty quickly into this conversation. So with that, we're going to jump right into our conversation with pain researcher, Dr. Chris Fowler. Dr. Chris Fowler, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, We're old friends, so I'm excited to be here. And I'm stoked too, because you are the first person who's invited me on a podcast that didn't ghost me. Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, we we are old friends. There was a time in San Diego where we were like each other's shadow, you know? <laughs> like people were always surprised when one of us would show up somewhere without the other. <laughs> Those were great times. Yeah, very good times. We had a lot of fun pool parties when I was living at my grandpa's house with the pool. Um, and my mom's house too. Well, that's right. At your mo- Oh, yeah. We had some really great parties at your mom's house. Very, very good times. Um, but you've gone on to become, uh, to get your PhD in pain research, which is like kind of incredible. Well, I mean, I'll let you speak for yourself. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but, um, when I, we, I discovered this recently and, you know, when I started the podcast, you reached out and we hadn't touched base in a while and you told me a little bit about what you do. I was like, wow, you have to come on the podcast because it, I, and this is such a lucky break for me to be able to talk to someone in your field of research who studies pain. I mean, that's, that's so cool to be able to share that with, uh, with the podcast listeners. And the fact that it's like a friend of mine who I don't even have to, you know, like break down your door to get you on the show is just so lucky and exciting. So this is a conversation I'm really, really excited to have. Yeah, me too. And and 
You know, don't be surprised about thinking about knocking down people's doors. You might find some really hammy people in research who just really <laughs> want to get their voice heard to like, as a professor once said, um, people who read some obscure journal that you've published. In. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's good to know. I'll keep my eye out for the hams. <laughs> um, so I always called you Fowler. I know, um, you know, you have your doctorate, you, your name is Chris. But I won't be able to help myself. I'm going to call you Fowler. It's just, you know, old habits. So <laughs> it's, it's an expect, this is an expect. I would expect no less. Yeah. So Fowler, why don't you introduce yourself? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, uh, just you, like Jesse said, we're old friends. And um, basically around the time we stopped being friends, it's just like, you know, I kind of made some mistakes and I was stagnating in my life. And I just kind of focused, started really focusing on education because I needed uh, some form of direction. And that's really kind of what put me on the path that I'm currently on. So um, I have a, so I have a PhD in clinical health psychology. So part of my education is in traditional clinical psychology, and then, which is, you know, kind of treating uh, behavioral health problems, including things that, you know, you know, that are considered mental illness or psychological disorders. And the health psychology piece was a concentration in my graduate program, which is really focusing on changing uh, health behaviors, which can range from anything with uh, pain behaviors, which we'll talk about today, you know, smoking behaviors, alcohol, problematic alcohol use and things of that nature. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, it's interesting how I got started in pain. Um, so I actually wasn't a pain researcher in graduate school. I um, was actually focusing more on schizophrenia spectrum disorders. Mm. And I was really interested in the public stigma of mental health and how do we define recovery in mental health. And around my fourth year in grad school, I started working in pain clinics and uh, treating people. And I actually realized that there was a huge overlap between uh, my interest in mental health and chronic pain, you know, it's almost, in, we'll talk, it, it's going to be hard to differentiate the two. It's almost like they're one and the same, essentially. Um, so I kind of shifted over to pain management, and then I moved down to Tampa. Um, I'm a research health scientist at the Tampa VA hospital, and uh, I basically have been doing pain research there ever since. Um, and that really kind of encompasses a couple of different things. Um, I work uh, with virtual reality and basically using it as a teaching tool to teach people how to manage their pain. Um, that's kind of one of the goals of the work that I'm doing right now. And I'm also working on um, some other projects where we're working on spreading uh, these different comprehensive pain programs across the VA system to different hospitals that don't really have a strong pain infrastructure, but are kind of in a position to advance um, and their pain infrastructure. And so those programs have to really kind of focus on how to really uh, introduce psychological well-being into an acceptance of pain, which we can definitely talk about too. Uh, that actually reminds me, um, I should say this, uh, being a, uh, working for, for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, uh, my views are my views. They don't reflect that of the federal government. What I'm talking about today is more about my feelings and not as part of like a, um, a, a federal entity. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I'll just have to say, you know, our friendship was actually very affected by chronic pain because, you know, we were, we went through this period of time where we were like inseparable in San Diego. And then I hit my first really bad health flare up and I just kind of dropped off the face of the earth. And this is something I've spoken to people about before, but when you find yourself in the midst of like a chronic pain, chronic health situation, it's really hard to maintain friendships. Uh, I talked to Cammy a little bit about this, while, how she experienced a lot of people sort of not wanting to talk to her anymore. And you definitely never did that. You were not one of those people at all. But a lot of my friends seemed uncomfortable wanting to be around me. And you were someone who would like still come around. And I, you know, I was still like, like near catatonic on the couch. You know, I had no idea what was going on around me at that moment in time. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, that really did like put an end to us hanging out all the time. And then I moved to Seattle after and we kind of lost touch for a few years. Um, so, but I do, I just want to thank you for not being a person who judged me for having a chronic health issue. Like you did attempt to, you know, maintain that relationship. And I was trying my best, but like kind of not really even present because I was in such a rough spot when it first happened. I'm, you know, this is totally off topic and very self-serving, but I'm curious to hear what, what it was like for you on your side, because like my memories are so blurry of, of my flare up. I know this is, you know, a little off topic and I have this professional, like, tell me about me, but I am curious. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think this sort of thing is remarkably relevant because these are the things that we were basically socially taught not not to talk about the negatives. It's kind of part of that social contract that, you know, just talk to any, like 90 plus percent of the people you talk to, Hey, how are you doing today? And there's like, they'll implicitly say, fine. You know, that's, that's kind of that, that mask that we wear because we don't want to burden ourselves or other people with how we feel. Um, I, I, sorry about the sidebar, but I, I just think you'll really like this. Um, there was a book that I avoided for a couple of years because, because of the title, it was called the happiness trap. And I thought, Oh God, get trapped in happiness. It sounded so kind of cheesy and new agey to me, but the title was actually, it's the reverse of that. It's basically like the trap is we uh, socially approach each other. Like we can just be happy 100% of the time. Like that, that's just the human goal that you should strive for. And interestingly, the trap of that is, is that actually makes some people happy because all of a sudden imagine it's like, okay, I've just gotten everything I worked for and I'm second of every day. What's the problem? And some people actually get depressed by those sorts of things. Um, and one of the things that that book said too, that was interesting, and they've studied this is if you, if you go to, a, if you just venting to a person about how bad things are, they feel like I need to help you, but I can't. And so, but that's like kind of the reaction that they have internally, but their external response is, well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or shouldn't you try exercising or shouldn't you go see a doctor? Um, And the funny thing is it's like, well, I never asked you to do anything. It's just, just listen, man, (laughs) just listen. And I think that's the hard thing is that people become so uncomfortable about that negative piece that you just described. Uh, As your friend during that situation, you know, I knew that you were having issues, but 
I didn't know the severity of those issues as well. Um, um, and I didn't know how much that you were kind of socially distancing from other people back then or isolating at the time, because that that's just something that never really came up. And whenever I was around you, you always kind of seemed like your social, happy, bouncy self. So I never, I guess, really uh, saw any issues in that regard. Wow. And yeah. So I just guess that I never really saw it that much, honestly. Wow. That um, surprises me. So mm -hmm. from your perspective, it must have felt like, wow, this guy doesn't want to hang out with me anymore. <laughs> um, I, you know, I also just learned that from my own experiences that, you know, whatever you're doing at that moment in your life is, is that kind of influences who you're hanging out with and what you're doing. And it's not necessarily like you abandon people entirely, but it's easier to see people less. Like when I kind of was trying to deal with my own problems and take my education seriously, I was hanging out with a lot of people I was in school with, you know, and it's just, to me, that's how life sort of unfolds. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I never knew that. I thought that, I thought no one wanted to be around me because it was so obvious that I had something had like changed in my body, you know, but I was also yeah. like, at that time I had been prescribed tramadol and Ativan. So I was really drugged up because I was having these muscle spasms and um, like hard time walking. So, you know, drugs can mask a lot too. So I guess when we were around each other, you know, like I, I, I wasn't able to work and I was home for like nine months, just kind of completely out of it. Um, and then I moved to Seattle like three months later. So it was like a year flare-up. Um, it was like a nine-month flare-up that uh, but took up like a year of my life, I guess, where I was just really kind of pulled back from all of my social circles because I just didn't have any social energy and really couldn't keep up with stuff. Um, and then when I would invite people over, I felt so uncomfortable because I felt like I was acting so different or I was trying so hard to seem normal inside of all the pain that I was suddenly experiencing. Um, but it's so interesting that it wasn't that noticeable because I thought it was like so noticeable, you know? It's just, you know, it's really hard to to know what other people are thinking and to get out of your own head or to know what other people are experiencing, especially with invisible illness. That's so fascinating. I, I wish that I'd made more of an effort to uh, just tell you, hey, like my brain is really hurting. I'm sorry. I'm, you know, kind of retreating right now. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um interesting point too is that's kind of one of the things that really defines the stigma of mental health is there, you know there's definitely layers to it you know you can look at it socially which is people might have negative um, thoughts or feelings about people with health problems you might see it environmentally or systemically of that could have been like before the americans with disabilities act where, you know, they weren't putting wheelchair ramps in places, which could be considered, you know, um, a slight on people who have disabilities. You know, it comes in all these different forms, but when people actually internalize that stigma, they, <clears throat> they really um, start to have that thought of like, oh, other people can see this in me. Yeah. And the reality is, unless it's just wildly apparent, that's often not true but it's such a part of your experience that it's easy to think that people see that in you yeah this is real this is blowing my my mind a little bit um yeah i feel i feel kind of bad which is funny because like 
there was nothing I could have done different at that moment because I was, you know, I couldn't even take care of my own dog or myself. My mom was coming over and doing my laundry and my my dog Miles went to stay with my parents for like the fir- for like six months because I just like couldn't get out of bed. Um, and I just assumed that everyone around me knew what was happening because it was so intense, you know, like I was going to the doctor constantly and, um, but yeah, you know, it's funny because like I, I have had an invisible illness my whole life until recently when I've needed to use a wheelchair and now I'm really experiencing what it feels like for people to see it. And it's so different than what I've been experiencing before. And, you know, this is further proof of that where, People can't look at you and know what's going on. Like some people can. There's like some people who are, you know, betazoids. They have like the the empath. That's from Star Trek. They're empaths. They they can see, you know, what what people are feeling. Like as someone with chronic pain, when I meet other people that have chronic pain, I feel like I can tell a lot. Not because of anything that they're doing or saying, but because I can feel it. I can feel like a similar energy that they're giving off that I know that I have. Um, but it's so, I mean, even talking to my girlfriend, Andy, like realizing, you know, some things are obvious and other things aren't. And a lot of the time you think something's obvious and you want people to understand, but you don't want to explain it, but they won't understand unless you explain it. It's this weird catch 22 yeah. that you get stuck in. That's why I think that, that this is such an interesting topic, because I feel like, honestly, I feel like everything that we'll talk about today is a catch 22 in some way. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, those are the funnest things I think to talk about at the same time. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the thing where there, there are no easy answers, and because of that, no one's talking about it. But it in, impacts people's lives so intensely. Or the people that are talking about it are brushing it off and gaslighting people because they can't see it. You know, this is a really common problem, like doctors gaslighting patients because they can't tell what's going on in their bodies. You know, when I was going to doctors in that flare-up in my early 20s, how are they supposed to know what's going on if my own friend can't even see what's happening? You know, it's like developing the tools to speak to a doctor in a way that makes sense to them and can help you get care takes a really long time. And I think that's a big part of why it takes so long for people to get diagnosed because we don't know how to express something that's invisible. Yes, that's a great point too. And it, it's kind of funny. It took me longer than I, I wish it had to learn that lesson when I I treated people because I, and this is kind of before I knew a lot about pain, I was just like everybody else viewing pain as like more the physical phenomenon. And I like, I didn't have a place in that, that world. Right. So I'd always be, Oh, when are you talking to your, your doctor? Oh, Monday. Okay, great. And then I'd see them the next Thursday. And so how do your point with your doctor go? Well, not good. And it was like, why not? Did, did, did you, did you talk to them? Did you talk about it? And they're like, they're like, no, no, it didn't even come up. And I came to the realization after hearing that enough times is like, I need to teach people to communicate with their doctor. Mm. This, um, this country has such a culture of doctor knows best that it kind of, and that's kind of one of the current debates of like kind of what's called the patient role is that like, if you're a patient, you are the passenger well, the doctor is driving everything. So you're not like an agent in your own experience. And so basically what I would tell people is, is the way I would describe it to them. It's like, okay, so your, your provider is going to come in and they're going to tell you what they think is important. That's over here on the left. On the right is what you think 
is important. And any overlap between those two, consider that a coincidence. Because hmm. you're going to be experiencing something totally different. And that's when I would start working on people. It's like, all right, what are, what's on your mind that you really want to? And we'd like come up with, okay, here's the questions you're going to ask your physician. Write them down. Take them to the appointment. And I was really trying to stimulate kind of more with these individuals, more productive, a more productive medical experience, essentially. Yeah, I mean, you know, there should be college courses on this. Like, there should some nonprofit should offer classes on how to talk to doctors to get um, to get results. Because, and we've talked about it quite a bit on this show so far. But it's just like one of the major barriers for people getting help is not um, not being able to communicate with their doctors. Like, it took me, um, you know, my early twenties was my first serious flare up. Uh, I'd been having trouble on and off before that, but we all always just thought it was like mold related. But this is the first time where we're thinking, oh man, there's something serious going on here and we got to figure it out. And I went into hardcore diagnostics and um, I just didn't, I didn't know how to communicate what I was experiencing with doctors and I was young and appeared healthy. But I'm like, no, I'm like, you know, trying to tell them that I wasn't able to function normally and it was a very sudden shift that had happened. Um, but without without being able to kind of speak it in terms that they'd understand, I just couldn't get anywhere with my care. So, very frustrating. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're rolling. So, we had some technical issues. Uh, Fowler's been kind enough to try a different computer. We got a much better connection, so hopefully we won't lose any words because everything you're saying is so valuable. I want to make sure that we can all hear you clearly. Um, <laughs> so, um, let's get back into this. So, Fowler, we have this unique opportunity to ask a very important question today. Usually at this point in the podcast, I ask people, what is your major pain? But today I get to ask you, what is pain in general? What is it? And I'm so excited to be able to talk about this. So, uh, Dr. Fowler, what is pain? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And um, uh, yeah, so just full, full disclosure, everyone, this is my uh, second run through with better technology. <laughs> <laughs> so, um Basically, uh, I have described pain to people as a spider web before. Uh, before Jesse and I went on the air, I, I used an analogy that uh, pain is like if you spill paint on the ground and don't go to clean it up, it just spreads all over everything in a person's life, you know, in terms of how it can, it can impact your social relationships, your romantic relationships with fam family relationships your ability to work, your ability to do things around the house. It really can hit just about any major area of a person's life. So I personally like the description of pain as an alarm system for the body. So imagine you're walking down the street and you go to cross the street, and maybe you slip off the curb and you sprain your ankle really bad. And maybe in half hour to an hour, you find you just can't walk on your ankle anymore. And anytime you do it, it hurts like crazy. That's basically your brain and body telling you, hey, don't do that because it's time to heal. And that's the function that pain serves. It's called survival value. Pain is basically your alarm to tell you, stop doing what you're doing because we need to heal. It can also be like if you put your hand on a hot stove, it also is the alarm in that situation because it's say, hey, stop doing that. That's causing damage. That is called acute pain. 
acute pain, um, if it's a serious injury, like a bone break or like a ankle sprain or something, it can last up to, you know, three months, sometimes up to six months based on some people's criteria. And it, but it tends to go away for the most part when the injury heals. However, the problem is, is, you know, you can feel pain in anywhere area of your body. That's because your brain is what sends that pain signal and it needs to be able to send that pain signal to anywhere. So if you sprain your ankle, basically that signal comes from your ankle all the way to your brain. Your brain processes it and shoots back of, stop doing that, you know, stop doing whatever you're doing right now, please. Uh, so pain travels through your nerves, through your entire brain and body. And that is necessary um, for essentially helping people survive. But the problem is sometimes people experience what's called chronic pain, which is when pain lasts longer than six months. And with chronic pain, your brain still has the ability to shoot that pain signal like any for any other ailment. But for most people, the physical healing often has actually taken place. It's not for everybody, but in the common case, the body might have healed already, but that pain signal is still firing to that area of the body. And for that reason, pain in a lot of ways can be thought of as an overactive uh, central nervous system, which is your brain and spinal cord, which are responsible for sending that signal to the body. So that's where chronic pain gets difficulty. And that's why it was called unexplained pain for a long period of time is because you can, you can hook people up to um, a nerve conductance test. You can take x-rays of people. You could take MRIs of people and they will appear physically healthy, yet they're still in a ton of pain. So that's basically where chronic pain gets very complex. And to really compound that issue, remember what I said earlier about acute pain. Acute pain is basically telling your body to stop doing whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. That actually is where it even gets more complex because basically when you stop doing whatever you're doing or you start doing things to avoid pain, you can start having a fear of pain. You can start having a fear of any activities or movements that can make your pain feel worse. That's where it becomes hard to have similar family relationships that you used to. That's where it can get very hard to maintain a job. To make matters worse, when you stop doing that, your body can actually start physically deconditioning itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You might become weaker which contributes to the pain. Um, anybody who's been in physical therapy before and had a, um, a decrease in pain as a result can attest to physical conditioning is very important for pain management in a lot of cases. Also, um, if you're not um, engaging activities, you might put on weight. That can also compound pain. So you start seeing where I kind of get here, where it just starts to take over everything. Yeah. There's a couple different common theories of pain. Um, there's, a, there's one that's considered sort of dated now called gate control theory that while it's 
not the dominant thought of pain anymore. It really, I think, is a good teaching tool for pain. I think it's the best teaching tool for pain. So basically, um, one of the things that we've learned in probably the last decade or so is that physical pain and mental emotional pain are processed in the same areas of the brain. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Physical pain and emotional pain are processed in the same areas of the brain. Yeah, that's fascinating. Sorry to interrupt. I just, I I think of, um, you know, when we talk about like emotional pain, I I have come to think of that as chronic pain as well, because the -hmm. the idea of, you know, your, your emotions and your body being two separate things, you know, there is a mind body connection. And chronic, to, you know, chronic depression or something like that is chronic pain, you know, emotional pain hurts. So, it's so interesting to know that they are actually processed in the same part of the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so interesting. And, you know, some of the more um, bio, you know, the, the kind of the more anatomical people who are discovering these things really kind of think that that's, that's about um, biological efficiency, like why have two pain centers of the brain when you have one? So from wow. an evolutionary perspective, it sort of starts to make sense that way. But like you said, it that's where it starts to become one in the same. It's like you will probably notice that on days where you're more stressed, more anxious, more feeling depressed, you probably hurt more too. Yeah, I've been trying to figure that out for over a decade. I, I mm-hmm. personally have not been able to find that that correlation i do feel like if i'm in pain um and i'm depressed i feel worse you know (laughs) obviously but i do Mm -hmm. i have a i've been working on tools to not get depressed because i'm in pain you know and i've found that i've actually made a lot of progress with being in a good mood while being in pain but i'm still in pain you know because we still don't know why um, but this is just my body. I mean, everyone's body is different. Um, and to me, the, the emotional and the physical pain feel different. Like the emotional pain feels like a tightness in my chest, if, if that makes sense. Um, or, mm-hmm. or even just like a non-physical sensation of pain. Whereas my body pain is very specific. It's like in specific points in my body. Um, and the, and the severity of that pain doesn't seem to change. Uh, well, we, we can't figure out. I mean, it changes, but we don't know why. It just like goes up and down randomly. And mm-hmm. it doesn't, that pain doesn't seem to be attached to my emotional state. But I do feel emotional pain also. And, you know, feeling both of them at the same time is really overwhelming. Like that's the, that's the part where things can get dire. It's like, wow, I'm, I'm in so much body pain and I'm really depressed, you know, that sucks. Like that's the worst place to be. <clears throat> Absolutely. And for a long time, even the psychological treatments were sometimes like, okay, yeah, we need to get that person up and moving again because that's, that's where uh, treating pain can be very counterintuitive because um, you're like, I say, you're behaving, I like to tell people you're biologically behaving appropriately. If you hurt somewhere um, and you're trying to avoid hurting that area more, that is the appropriate response in that situation. 
But now you have this illogical thing happening in your body, which is chronic pain. Yeah. So it's it's like the logical thing doesn't work as well anymore. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it, it's like, so that uh, pain rehabilitation is tough because we want to help people recondition their body physically um, as part of the way to combat the pain. But also when people start regaining their life back and start having more positive experience and more positive moods, that actually seems to dampen the pain. We used to think, oh, let's get rid of the depression and help with the depression and anxiety. Well, what that does is it's beneficial because people feel less depressed or less anxious, but it didn't appear to do anything for their pain. Hmm. In recent years, people have found that helping pe people engage in things that make them feel better about themselves or their life is actually correlated with reduced pain. Yeah, totally. And this this lines up with my experience a little bit where um, getting some physical activity, like getting the blood flowing, getting my muscles conditioned a little bit, seems to give me an over, overall sense of well-being in, increase. And that seems to make my massive pain flare-ups less severe or, or more spaced out. So mm -hmm. I, I absolutely think that there is some correlation between getting some physical activity and helping with chronic pain. The problem is that, you know, the physical activity can be prohibitively painful. Yep. And, you know, like I, I'm having a lot of trouble with my legs. This is something I was just talking to my therapist about yesterday is that like, um, I've started using a wheelchair because my legs are not working very well and they're very painful. And, you know, like the pain is one thing, but then the functionality is another. It's like, if I try to power through the pain, then my legs will stop working and I fall a lot. And sometimes I just can't get the signals from my brain to my legs to work. We think there's like a neurological connection. You know, we're, we're exploring, we're still like trying to track down what's going on with my copper levels because there are syndromes of copper toxicity that cause that. So like there, no amount of physical activity is going to make my legs feel better if that's the case, but we don't know if that's the case. Mm -hmm. And I'm really concerned about muscle atrophy and losing strength in my legs. Um, but at the same time, I just, I've started using a wheelchair and now I'm getting exercise in the wheelchair where I feel safe. I'm not falling. I can go much further dif distances. My arms are feeling pretty good. Um, and I have found an activity that I can do after five years of not really being able to do much at all. And it's making a huge positive impact in my life in so many ways, just emotionally and physically, because I, I can travel further. I can do stuff on my own. And I, uh, um, and like I said, like my, my flare ups are further between and a little less severe. Um, so I'm in this weird spot where it's like, for years I was trying to like, to jog or bike or something and it was just not working at all so i've experienced like running into that brick wall of trying to do physical activity and you just can't because your body won't allow it but now i found a new activity that is outside of anything that i tried before because you know who has a wheelchair lying around and now something is finally <laughs> working for me and that's why i like to talk about this a lot is because you know getting creative trying different things i'm not saying a wheelchair is going to work for everyone but um you know, get get a Ring Fit Adventure <laughs> on Nintendo <laughs> Switch. Like, try I I tried that and it didn't work because it was like I couldn't use my legs for it. But um, there are just like so many things to try, and I feel like doing the exercise you used to do before your chronic pain isn't necessarily the answer. But finding mm -hmm. any exercise can be so helpful.
Absolutely. And that that's where the adaptivity comes into place because that that's where, you know, you know, we're kind of building on this complexity throughout this conversation, which will happen. And honestly, and as you in every pain conversation, if you dig in, it gets more complex yeah. with each layer. And um, yeah, because some of the some of the things is that's where it can get difficult for people sometimes. It's like I want to do activity X. And I can't do activity X anymore. But when you describe your situation with the wheelchair, I was really impressed when you told me about that a couple of weeks ago. It's like so many people would look at the wheelchair as some personal failure. And you actually saw it as something that opened your life up. You actually saw, oh, I can go outside easier. I'm getting more exercise. I'm in, I can enjoy myself more because of this. And because you've learned to actually modify something that you like doing, it's not the same as what you used to do, but you're getting a variation of it. Yeah. This is what I was talking about in therapy is how much I miss jogging and biking. You know, Mm -hmm. like there is difficulty in making this adjustment, but the, if I focus on the joy of being outside and doing and like, you know, going for a nice long roll, um, I love it. It feels good. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really tough to not look at it as a personal failure. And I also think about people who have, you know, traumatic injury who who need a wheelchair. And that's just such a different experience than what I've had because I was just trapped inside for five years because my legs weren't working so good. But we didn't know why. And then now I can go do stuff and it's so joyous for me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that is a serious challenge is making that change, making that adjustment. And I think I was... You know, I'm always trying to trick myself into being happy um, and the knowledge that going outside and getting some sun and getting some movement um, feels good and is good is like, I'm, I'm allowing that to kind of trick me into not focusing on the challenge or the disappointment or the sadness in needing to do something um through ex- like inaccessible ways, you know, it's tough. I, I, I feel like I'm having an easier time of it for some reason than a lot of people would. And I feel lucky for that, you know, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. And there's, there's a couple important things that you say in there. Be- and you said earlier too, it's, it's, it's you kind of have a willingness and an acceptance about pain and what's been going on. Because that can also be a part of the issue, too, is because a lot of times in healthcare, it's so attractive to treat symptoms. Hmm. So if you think about pain, um, maybe you, you might, th- like if you talk the physical piece, some people might get relief from stretching, some people might use heat pads, some mm-hmm. people might use ice packs or TENS units that basically send that shock through you know, the nerves yeah. to help dull the pain. Well, what can happen is sometimes people can get really good at controlling the pain, but that's ends up being like, that's all they do. You know, it's like, and then their life is just kind of, um, and it can be really difficult because you'll see a lot of people, their life really kind of revolves just around controlling their pain. And that is um, so tricky And then that's when it's like, if you get people who kind of fall into that trap, that's where you actually get to where you're talking about. And I don't want to say trap, like it's in, it's, it's like, (laughs) it's, I think this is part of the zeitgeist. It's so hard to talk about things sometimes 
because you want to be like so appropriate and or not sound like such an absolutist. So yeah. I promise I I'm not you. trying to be that. Yeah. Um, I'm not trying to be an absolutist. So when I use the word trap, I'm not saying that like it's negative. It's good that people learn to manage their pain. For sure. But we also want to see people be able to like have some acceptance of it too, because being able to accept that it might occur and being able to do things in spite of it can be very important. Totally. That's huge. That's hard. But, and, but to also say at the same time, that's also very hard too, because um, there's a, there's a trick or tool we teach called activity rest cycling. Um, So for example, one thing that happens is people in pain are what are called, uh, we call them boom or bust cycles, which means that like, if it's a really bad pain day, I'm doing nothing. But if I wake up and my pain's a two, I'm going to go mow the lawn and clean the gutters and climb up on the roof and yeah. paint the garage. Yeah. You know? And the next thing you know, and you're in a whole lot of pain because you way overdid it. Yeah, exactly. And then they can be down for the count for the next several days. They have a great day, but then yeah. there's a lot of several days. So like activity rest cycling is something that we can teach people to get back into the habit is, okay, uh, note your pain. Okay, what's your pain at when you start working? Okay, you consider your pain at a four. Go do things. And as soon as your pain hits a five in your brain, don't power through. Hmm. Go rest. Yeah. Because that's that's the dark side of like the, the physical approach is physical conditioning is important. But if we teach people to power through, power through, power through, we can actually harm them more on the back end. I do this to myself constantly. That's so true. I do it too. I, I just talked about this on the on last week's episode i think um you know now that i'm saying that i don't remember which episode it was because i'm recording so many this week (laughs) um but i just talked about this where i like went for a really long roll in my brand new wheelchair and i went i went too far and i hurt i hurt so bad the next day you know the whole next day i was out so i'm still trying to learn where my limits are because i'm so excited that i can do anything now with the wheelchair so you're right that's a great way to think about it. Like, what is your pain number when you start? Go up one more number and then stop, you know? And Mm -hmm. like, if you're starting at a six, when you get to a seven, chill out. That's so valuable. I think it's, in my experience, it's been better to do a little bit every day than a lot on one day and nothing for several days. I feel like it, it's just better conditioning for the body, you know, trying to get your bo- bodies like live on cycles, like the day night cycle, the hunger cycle, like, you know, you, you fill your bladder, you have to pee cycle. Like it's all, it's all cycles. You eat food, you poop later. So <laughs> your, your body is like very dependent on cycles. Human beings just love cycles in general. We, re- we respond to them naturally because we live on a planet that has, you know, that has cycles like day night cycles, year cycles, um, moon cycles, all these things affect us. Um, so if you can, if you can train your body with new cycles, I think that it can actually be really beneficial. And if part of that is like getting a little bit of movement um, and then resting, you know, it's really hard to balance that. But I feel like you can, you do have some control over that as someone with chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the hardest, one of the hardest skills I think to learn is to stop something in the middle. <laughs> and just like, okay, yeah. stop the lawnmowers. Or for me, 
get out of my damn desk chair and, you know, go do some pushups or something. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. It, it's so hard. I feel like we feed on that moment of feeling like we're in the rhythm or in the zone and we don't want to stop. Um, and that's sometimes we'll like, we'll teach people to interject. It's like, okay, what do you want to do? Okay. You want to, you, you want to mow the lawn today. Okay. When your pain jumps up a point, go do something else that requires, you have other stuff to do. You know, it might be sit down and pay your bills. Maybe it's just sit down and read or do something else that you want to do. So it's like, we, it's like, we also don't want people to feel like, that, okay, now I just need to be trapped sitting around doing nothing. It's like, so it's kind of like, it's like, so it's like, you might teach people, here's how you work around that big activity. And then let's find something else you can do to fill in the gaps where you're just, you know, I don't want, I don't want to like, I mean, I hate sitting down sometimes and thinking about the thing I wish I was doing. I think that's a very human thing mm-hmm. or the thing that's not getting done. So it's, you know, it's, it's a very um, productive thing. I think sometimes is to think about, well, how can we fill those downtime periods where maybe we can't do what we want to be doing with something else that is we consider productive. Totally. Uh, yeah. And another uh, thing I want to say about pain too, is how overwhelming it can be for people. Because when you think about how it can impact so many different areas of your life, from your relationships to work, to how it changes your body, to how it changes your mood and your emotions and how you think, um, it can be so overwhelming to try to rehabilitate from pain because in a, in a perfect world, you'd want all these things to be, to like work on all these things at one time. But it's so hard to kind of, you know, to change one thing in a person's life, in anyone's life. I think anyone who's tried to change anything has found that behavioral change is remarkably hard. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's it, it becomes about kind of grading. And, and it's in a perfect world. It's like we can change one thing and use that momentum to lead to another change and lead to another but it can feel so overwhelming when just looking at the whole piece at once and going, Oh my God, where do I begin? Absolutely. And you just see that it's like, you see, or you feel that and you're just like, Oh, <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I've felt that at times myself. And I think for me, the, the, you know, you talked about acceptance being really important. And for me, the hardest thing, um, the biggest barrier to me accepting what was going on with me was being told by doctors that there was nothing wrong. Um, you know, it, it, we this comes up a lot, but my opinion on this is that if someone is in chronic pain, there's something wrong. <laughs> Whether it's physical or emotional, chronic pain is an, is something that you should go to a doctor to seek help for, I think. And doctors should be receptive to helping those people. But when doctors do some tests and can't find anything, they just kind of are done with you. They're like, well, we couldn't find anything, so go on about your life. You just got to live with this now. Or, you know, I or they'll say, well, we couldn't find anything, so I think this is all in your head, so you need to go to a behavioral psychologist and try to learn how to not feel this pain anymore. And the way that it is talked about is so upsetting it is so uh it's like a personal attack it's like oh well you've just been wasting my time and lying about this thing that you're experiencing or or you're just crazy so i don't want to deal with you anymore 
Um, and that makes it next to impossible to accept what's happening to you because it it makes you question everything about your yourself. You know, you you start to question your own sanity. You're like, well, if this many doctors are telling me that this is all in my head, then maybe it is. And you start to doubt your own sanity and you start to doubt your own um, intuition about your own body. And it's incredibly harmful. And um, that that was so damaging in my life. And, you know, I I went to the behavioral psychologists and they're like, no, this is, I can't help you get out of this pain. That's not what this is. You need to find a diagnosis. Um, but there's always been that piece in the back of my mind that's asking myself, like, is this my fault? Am I doing something to make this happen? Am I, you know, clenching my teeth too hard at night so that I have caused chronic pain that has now overloaded my nervous system so that now I can't walk, you know? And I know that, like, no one's ever said that that's happened to someone before, but like, this is my, my paranoid mind. Just like looking at all my behaviors. Am I eating something wrong? Am I sitting in the wrong position when I eat that now my gut is messed up? Like you just start to question everything about yourself to try to figure out like, what is it that I'm doing? So I would love to hear your opinion on this. Cause I know that you're someone who has, you know, you worked in, um, in behavioral psychology and you've had patients come to you with chronic pain uh, and you've been the guy to try to help them through that. So, I, I'm really curious to hear about this from your perspective. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it, it's just as frustrating, like when you kind of learn the ropes. It, it, so, if you came to me today and told me everything that you just told me, it, it would be frustrating to me, not just you. Because... Um, you know, a good, a good pain psychologist, which, you know, not all places have a good pain psychologist. A good pain psychologist would, could look at you and say, there's no possible way that a person is in this much pain without some validity to it. You know, there is validity to this pain, which it really has to suck for people to be told that that's just not the case. And um, so... I think one of the um, things that I have really worked to, with people to understand or to work with, and this is actually kind of a serendipitous. When you launched this podcast, it was kind of serendipitous um, because, like, the week before, my one of you know one of my best friends that I've known since grade school texted me and said, or he texted me and was you know just indicating some pain. And I said, hey, give me a call. And he said, and, you know, the response, his response was, well, you know, I have a lot of appointments next week. And, um, you know, like, and he made a joke. He's like, he made a, he, he made a crack at me just because we're smart asses. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I said, oh, no, no, I understand. I'm not, I'm not going to try to like, like, let's just talk, please. Because what I wanted to tell him, I didn't want to like, okay you need to do X, Y, and Z. That was not the conversation. It's like, I wanted to tell him like, okay, here's what to expect from the system. Mm -hmm. You might run into people who don't believe you. You might run into people who, um, who might, who might want to push you too hard or get you to do things that you want to do. But I also taught him about some of the other things that we've talked about today, how chronic pain is very counterintuitive biologically and that sometimes sometimes pain is telling us the right thing to do to stop sometimes it's telling us 
uh, sometimes stopping is the wrong thing to do. And the other reason I wanted to have that conversation with him is because um, there was something in his verbiage that, that I think that spoke to me about, um, you know, getting rid of the pain. And kind of back to that spot of pain acceptance, I wanted to, t- I, I told him, I said, you know, one of the things you really have to go into this experience with is, you know, you have to accept that maybe that the pain will never completely go away. That's not saying that it can't get better, but maybe that in some level, it's always going to be there, even if it's very short. Another frustrating part is if you just look, if you look at just the data of chronic pain. So the estimates of chronic pain in America alone are between 50 and 100 million people. Wow. So anywhere between one in three and one in six people will experience chronic pain in their lifetimes for at least a period. May not per- maybe not permanently, but a period. Of that percent, about 20% has what's called high impact chronic pain, which is when you actually start seeing the pain have a significant impact on some level of their life, whether it's a occupational disability or um, hurts their relationships with other people, causes social isolation. So that, you know, if you basically break that down, a significant chunk of those one in three to one in six people are also going to experience at this great level. Hmm. How can you like look at that data and go, Oh, it's probably just in your head. <laughs> are you kidding? Like how can something happen between one and three and one in six people? And you'd go, it's in your head. I, I know. Right. It. It's crazy, but that's, it's so common. It's so freaking yeah. common. Like so many doctors, all these people, that are scientifically minded who just can't recognize that something happening to someone else might be real. Yes. <laughs> and it's, do- you know, doctors are funny because I've seen, I've seen the spectrum, I think in a lot of ways, honestly, I can tell you the, one of the most profound experiences I had with a doctor that I worked with, he was like every negative stereotype you could talk about a doctor. He was very, he was very bullish. He was very know-it-all. He was very materialistic. He was very narcissistic. You know, <laughs> the list goes on. I sat in when I was new to the clinic and watched him do uh, a nerve conductance test. And um, the guy sat down and when the guy left, he's like, yeah, that guy's got the worst neuropathy I've ever seen. And he goes, it drives me, and he goes, it drives me crazy when doctors say that they did a nerve conductance test and it came back negative. It's like there are billions of nerves in the human body. A negative nerve conductance test can just mean you didn't find the right nerve that's right. not firing or misfiring. Absolutely. So it's kind of funny because it's like sometimes you could just meet, I've met physicians like him who can be very off-putting. Who were who when it came to that area were all of a sudden remarkably compassionate. And I've also met physicians that I really thought highly of as people. And then they call me in to like take someone off their hands because they started crying. And it's like, what? Like, 
this person's suffering. Get used to some tears. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, yeah. just because someone's crying does not mean you call in a psychologist. Like, yeah. that's that. I may, I mean, I'm not trying to put down my own profession, but like, not everybody needs me. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're looking for answers from you, not me. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So what? I mean, when you were when you were working with. Uh, was it private practice that you were doing or, you know, or you were working at the VA or wh- where was it that you were doing uh, in practice I've with done, patients? I've done both. Okay, great. So mm-hmm. when you're working with patients and someone is referred to you because of chronic pain and the referral says, you know, let's say like conversion disorder, um, which is, the nomenclature mm-hmm. is now changing from, from conversion disorder to functional neurological disorder, which is... Um, you know, when, when conversion disorder was explained to me when I was actually diagnosed with it at one point, uh, what was told to me is that your brain is cross-wired somehow, and your brain is turning your stress response into pain. And you need to see a behavioral psychologist to, to fix your brain so that you will no longer do that to yourself anymore, basically is how it was explained. And I, I don't know much of anything about functional neurological disorder, because I think that's kind of the newer understanding of, of what was called conversion disorder. And I think that there, the science is improving and we're learning more about it. And uh, the thing with conversion disorder is there was kind of like blame or fault placed on the mm-hmm. patient. So, what do you do when someone is referred to you with that sort of a situation? I mean, wh- where do you go? What, what can be done? Another thing too, another popular one is, is somatic symptom disorder. Mm-hmm. That was always another one too, that is basically like when we're uh, talking about chronic pain and um, we're talking about chronic pain, but it definitely got the psychological tag. Yeah. And sadly, when something gets the psychological tab or tag and someone gets referred to the psychologist, Sometimes that means the one person was like, okay, um, you go over here now. And <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Well, it was literally and, like, I can't diagnose you, so you must not have a thing. Which, mm-hmm. like you are just saying about the nerve conductivity test, how about there are like billions of diseases? I mean, I don't even know how many diseases yeah. there are that we've cataloged, but how about you haven't found it yet, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, so... It really kind of goes with the territory. Have you first off? Have you ever heard the? Have you ever heard the uh, term garbage bin diagnosis or garbage pail diagnosis? Uh, sort of, but but tell me about it. It basically means um, I I don't know what wrong know what's wrong with you, and I'm going to throw you in this nondescript category. Yeah, um, it's like it, it's it's a catch all in but- mental health. A lot of times if they can't figure out what's going on, you know, schizophrenia, even though it's a very real condition has been a garbage pail diagnosis at times. Um, in pain, the pain world, fibromyalgia has been I was just going to say that. Yeah. Which I do think is a real thing, but I think is. that a ton of people are diagnosed with fibromyalgia because it's a diagnosis of exclusion. Like if we can't find a diagnosis, then you get this label. That's exactly conversion disorder, exact same thing in my case. Um, like we can't find it. So you get this label. Exactly. And how messed up is it that, I mean, they're, they're, they're in mental health. There's what's called adjustment disorder, which is like um, kind of like this transitional um, period of like, you might 
diagnose um, adjustment disorder with depression or anxiety. What that means is basically what adjustment disorder, the purpose it serves, one is oftentimes if you're dealing with insurance or payment, you need some level of diagnosis. So adjustment disorder, you're basically saying, okay, this person has a temporary depression or temporary anxiety. The real purpose it holds is it's kind of like a holdover diagnosis for you to do some more work and find out what's wrong. That's how it would work in a perfect world for a lot of these diagnoses. But how messed up is it? How you describe it too, where you, you talk about the conversion disorders or the fibromyalgias, where um, basically they go from like, well, we can't figure this out, so we'll diagnose you with this for now to, oh, but, it, and then somewhere along the way, it gets translated to fake. Yeah. Like, how, you know, it, it's really, it's really messed up that that's how we get from one area to another is, is we see a lot of people we can't descri- uh, describe, we put them in a category and that's what happens. I told you this too, the last time we talked, one of the difficulties, it's really kind of the plight of individuals with um, non-understood diagnoses. Um, like with pain, for example, a person might go to a provider and the provider says, okay, I can't find anything wrong with you. And the person's going, but there's clearly something wrong with me. I'm not just making up how much my body hurts. Um, but they also feel that defeated feeling you just described. So that what that does is that actually puts the pressure on the person with pain to get some level of treatment, right? So then they go into the next place and it's like, well, if that person didn't believe me, I need to, I need to turn up the volume on this mm. because this person needs to believe me. Mm. And then that next person doesn't believe them. What happens if that happens three or four times, all of a sudden the person and might turn up the volume so much to really just try to convince a person that I hurt. And then it might end up with, oh, this person's faking it. They couldn't possibly be in this much pain or those behaviors are very inconsistent with a pain diagnosis. And it's like, it's so hard because it's like, no, this happened because we ignored the person. Yeah. And, but they could end up with a conversion disorder or something like that. To, to tie that back into your psychology problem, it, it, you know, it really goes with the territory. Um, even with diagnosing uh, pain, we have to, at least uh, when I was still practicing up to four or five years ago in the medical diet, in the, in the uh, software we use, it was somatic symptom disorder with predominant pain. That was the chronic pain diagnosis. So it still had that stigmatized somatic symptom disorder, which kind of had that stigma like conversion disorder or fibromyalgia have as kind of these catch-all diagnoses. When I work with people, I mean, I really think that, well, I think when you work in pain psychology, if you get somebody referred to you with their problem is purely psychological or they're not in pain or they need to figure it out, you're pretty much, my knee-jerk reaction is going to be, or my typical mode I go into, and I think a lot of people would agree with me on this, is that okay, I'm going to rule out everything that that person just said. <laughs> and we're going to um, focus on the person's life. Yeah. 
And that's where we start focusing on what are the things that impact pain. Pain's what's called a biopsychosocial condition, which means there's a biological element, which is that's the brain sending the pain signal to your body. There's psychological, which is how that pain interacts with your moods and emotion and how they feed off of each other. And then there's social, which is basically how your social environment and society in general kind of react to your pain, whether it's falling out of touch with people because you don't have the energy that you used to, or um, maybe a spouse gets fed up and leaves, um, you know, because so that's like a social relationship. Obviously, these three things are intertwined and they feed off of each other. So basically, it helps to view pain as not just a biological condition, but a biopsychosocial condition where these three things are, are going to feed off of each other. So what is it about this individual? What's going on in their life where that pain started to go from maybe a minor nuisance to relatively unbearable much of the time? Um, and it, you know, it can be surprising. It can be, it, it can range anywhere from a true physical ailment of like a wound that never healed. It could be that the person has, um, like we said, like nerve damage or overreactive nerves. Sometimes it has been like a social part of a person who was already in a decent amount of pain. And then when their marriage got in trouble, all of a sudden, like their pain just started ramping up like crazy. Mm -hmm. And, but at the same time, um, you know, that is something that sort of, you know, in some cases I've seen that strengthen relationships too, which is great um, in that regard, because, you know, it, it, a person might go like, you know, I mean, it might reinforce a commitment that we've made to other people sometimes when these things happen, which is, can be like a fortunate byproduct of this. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, you know, there's that, that's such a, 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 a heavy question, but I, yeah, like I said, I pretty much ignored any time. I didn't ignore it completely, but I really tried to get it out of my head that someone said they were faking it. Um, in the VA, my job was a lot easier because, um, opioids were off the table. By the time I came into the VA, you did have to work a little harder in the private sector when opioids were very much in play because a minority of people I saw there was drug seeking behavior, but I really want to state that it was a minority. It was yeah. not the majority of people. It, it also becomes very hard to work when somebody is labeled with like a conversion disorder or a purely psychological pain by certain providers, because pain is really, we kind of know now that it's so complicated that pain is best treated by a team of people working together. Hmm. So um, it was much more of a problem in the private sector when it would just be like, okay, um, we'll stick you with a psychologist. Um, what's kind of nice where, when I was treating um, in, the, in the more federal system was it was started centered around these interdisciplinary integrated teams that makes life so much easier when you have support of the other providers. Yeah, totally. 
Yeah, this is also interesting because, you know, I I can only see this from my point of view, and I have a lot of baggage around this because... And we've yeah. done our best to give you that baggage. Yeah. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like now, now that I'm at this point where we have found abnormal test results, we still don't know what the cause is, but we are now in a pure, purely medical side with my treatment, you know? Um, it took, and it took over a decade of, of going through diagnostics to get to that point. And I was, I had to, you know, several times get like psychological evaluations to even continue to get diagnostic care because doctors mm-hmm. were like, well, I really can't find anything. I think you're making this up. Go see the, go see the shrink. The shrink would say, nope, you're good. You know, this is like, this sounds like you need to keep seeking a medical thing. And I went through that at least twice um, at my old medical center because they just wouldn't want to give me any diagnostic care anymore. But that whole process is so backwards because um, everyone should be in therapy that has chronic pain because living in chronic pain is so hard to deal with. And talking to a therapist is very helpful. Um, And physical and emotional pain are both chronic pain. So, the idea that we, we can't or we won't help someone who's in psychological pain is stupid. And like mm-hmm. it's just completely ridiculous. So, and there are, you know, like you said, the expectation shouldn't necessarily be, oh my God, this chronic pain, I want it to just go away completely. The expectation should be, well, let's see if we can help you make any progress toward le- leading a happy, healthy, productive life, even if that pain is still a part of your life. Because you know, there's just so many diseases. There's so much we don't know about the body. Some people's pain might never get diagnosed. You know, I might be one of those people where we will never find a diagnosis. But I've already learned that, you know, thinking about that in a binary fashion is not helpful because I used to think like I either need to get a diagnosis or just like, um, or work on living my best life now, you know? I can't do both at the same time. It was too like overwhelming. And I've learned that you really have to do both at the same time. Yep. You absolutely have to work on having the best, healthiest, happiest life you can with your pain. Like my pain level is like a like a four to six today, you know? Um, like today I have like burning down the right side of my body and my right leg on my right arm, my right temple. The, the spots that always hurt for me are hurting today. But luckily, my brain fog is at a minimum so I can have this conversation. I'm doing a thing that I really enjoy. I'm producing this podcast. I'm talking to a friend. We're talking about something I care about. You know, this is a productive day for me, even though I'm in pain today. So, it's obviously possible to do that. It's just hard. And learning the emotional tools to do that is something that behavioral psychologists can help people do. And that's what I'm hearing from what you're saying is that you're looking at the individual's life and you're, you're pinpointing what can we do to try to, to get some improvement here. You're not necessarily saying, you know, well, let's take these doctor's notes and this is the diagnosis and we're going to try to treat this. That's not what you're doing. Um, and I think that that is great. I think that, you know, that sort of binary thinking is really harmful to patients. And I wish that more providers looked at things that way. And you seem to have compassion for the people you're trying to treat and an understanding that, you know, I I may not be able to get this person out of pain, but we can at least try and we can at least try to help it improve. And that's huge. So, tackling it from as many different points of view as possible, kind of you know, imagine it's like a bowl of spaghetti and you throw it against the wall. A couple of pieces are going to stick, even if 90% of the bowl falls on the ground. Anything that sticks to the wall for someone who's in chronic pain is helpful and valid and valuable. And it's when you stop trying, you just grab this bowl of spaghetti and just throw it on the ground and smash it and you give up. 
Like that's when you're not going to make progress. But it's so hard to not do that when you're talked to by all these doctors and getting gaslit all the time. And they're just saying like, this is made up and not real. What are you supposed to do? You know? Um, so learning to, learning to keep looking for better providers and learning not to take everything that every doctor says to you as, you know, the gospel fact, um, learning how to kind of sift through that using your own intuition about what's happening. All of it is so complicated and so difficult. Um, and I just wish that the system worked different, but it is what it is. And we have to learn how to navigate it. A phrase that I was taught that I loved that I think really complements with, with what you just said is, you know, if you have a hammer, you see nails. And that's like a kind of a good descriptor of the healthcare system sometimes is basically what you're trained to do is what you're going to see in other people. And so it's like, if I'm trained to write prescriptions, I'm going to find something to prescribe you. Um, and like you talked about with the compassion piece, it's just, I, you know, I had a background in mental health stigma. I have a lot of mental health in my family. So uh, issues. So it was never hard for me, I think, to have like a, just a natural compassion um, because I grew up curious about what was going on with certain people in my life, but never, and, but it was never like a, I didn't want to be around the person or they, they scared me or something like that. Um, I can also say at the same time, you know, one of the ironic parts, I could also make the argument that my compassion uh, sort of made me like, uh, it was almost like my undoing as a clinician because <laughs> I think, um, because um, there is there there is what is called compassion fatigue. It's a it's mm. it's kind of a form of burnout mm -hmm. where it's just like for some people it presents itself as I've tried so hard to help and I don't feel like I've made a dent that compassion kind of flies out the window. I didn't really have that happen, but a, a similar thing that happened to me is I would say a good psychologist who's really trying to help somebody change their behavior has a lot of compassion but also has some toughness underneath to push the people forward yeah and i don't think i had that uh requisite toughness hmm. and it's not like mean tough like tough love but it's almost you know it's it's like a sports coach that might be a little hard on you sometimes but it's because they want the best for you Sure. Which I, I guess that is tough love, <laughs> but like I, I I think, but not tough love like I don't know like uh, an abusive parent. <laughs> I don't know. But I I I think that I sort of sometimes lacked the toughness to push people as hard as I needed to. Interesting. Um. So I think there was a. I I, I do think there can be too much. I don't think there's a such a thing as too much compassion, but I think in that specific instance in that specific trade. I think I had too much compassion and not quite enough toughness. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, that must be so hard to to try to help someone through because the things that have helped me the most have all been internal. You know, it's all been, mm -hmm. um, I call it mental gymnastics, you know, trying to trick myself into being happy. Um, like if I, if I have something rough coming up health-wise or test-wise or whatever, um, 
like this thing I did recently, I was being tested for Wilson's disease, which is a copper processing issue. Um, and there's a very restrictive diet you need to be on with Wilson's disease. So I did genetic testing for it. And I've told this story before, but I want to tell you now because it's relevant. Um, I, I went on the Wilson's disease diet for the month that I was waiting for the test results because if the results came back positive, I was getting a head start. But if the results came back negative, which is what I was afraid of because I wanted this disease so badly to have an answer, if the results came back negative, I got to go back on my regular diet and eat chocolate again and, you know, all my favorite foods like leafy greens and pork and all the stuff that I had to take out of my diet. So, I, when the results came back negative, I just, you know, gorged on chocolate and gave, <laughs> gave myself this relief because mm -hmm. the the results were a real blow. It was like really upsetting, but to have something that was a relief on top of that really helps. It helps so much. And I, you know, this was against, my doctor did not recommend this. She's, since then I've asked her about it and she said, please don't change your diet. <laughs> like while we're doing these tests, you know, we need to keep your body stable because um, if you have a copper processing issue, it's either too high or too low. We still don't know what it is. And it's not safe to, to take action until we figure it out. So, it wasn't necessarily a safe thing that I did, but it's just an example of like tricking yourself into um, dealing with something the best that you can, you know, setting yourself up to, to have something good, even if bad happens. I have found that to be so helpful. And this is all just like me doing mental gymnastics and thinking about like, how can I stay happy? And like, what can I do that's going to keep me happy? And a huge part of it is my relationship with Andy. It's a massive part of it to have someone who loves me and cares about me and supports me that I'm really fighting to get better for in a lot of ways. Like I'm fighting for myself, but I'm also fighting for something external because I want our relationship to be good and I want to be the best partner to her that I can be. And if I'm not fighting for myself, then, you know, um, then I'm also letting myself down and letting her down. So, you know, having things to fight for is so important. And if you don't have them, it can be so hard, but there's always stuff out there. The world is large. There's so, it, I, I've been through this before where it just feels like there's no options and there's no hope, but that's never true. There's always options and hope. It's just about getting creative and figuring it out. And it can be like the greatest challenge you'll ever face, but it is always possible. I, I agree. And I, I want to, uh, I think that there's a couple really cool things in, in what you just said is, and I meant to say this as, as part of the last response too, but I, 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 I forgot in there. It's, it's, you know, that big blow when you were looking for that diagnosis that didn't come in. The part that I've left out so far and I'll call myself negligent in that regard, <laughs> you deserve to know what's wrong with you. You absolutely do. And from a mental perspective, it's such a huge relief to people because yeah. knowing what's wrong doesn't fix you per se, but all of a sudden that fork in the road, that's actually, you know, 50 different directions becomes maybe one or two. So <laughs> at least you can throw yourself down a path at that point. Yeah. And that's important for people to know, to know they can stop searching because I don't want, it's like, it's, you hit the nail on the head. It's like, you don't want to stop searching, but you also don't want the search to like, hold you back at the same time yeah yeah and 
Another thing that I think is so cool that you've talked about in the podcast is with your partner is that, you know, you, because you both have had um, chronic conditions, you've always been able to feel like you can support each other. And there isn't this feeling like it's a one way street all the time. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, just going back to what we talked about in the beginning, like with our friendship back in San Diego, um, something that I've learned is that when you're in chronic pain, you're, you're not aware of the social messaging that you're giving off with your body, you know? Like you're not aware of like, I've learned this by dating Andy is like there's times where she thinks that I'm upset with her and it has nothing to do with her. I'm in a lot of pain and I'm just like, so in my head about, man, I just got to get through this, you know? And just kind of like going internal and and tr- almost trying to get into like a meditative state to get through that moment. That can really, when you're in a room with someone hanging out, they're just like, man, this person doesn't want to talk to me. They don't want to be around me. Like, this sucks. Um, which is not at all what is happening. And just like hearing what your perspective was on when I flared up in San Diego, you know, like I didn't communicate to you what I was going through. And I, it didn't even occur to me that I hadn't done that you know, and that damages relationships inadvertently, like being in pain has, does inadvertently damage relationships if you're not present and aware of what's happening. And that's so hard to manage and something that's like, so like, I'm glad that I've learned that lesson now. It's something I wish I could have known earlier, but you can't really learn it without going through it, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just like, I don't know. I've just, I've learned a lot at this point about finding good ways to live in pain and mm-hmm. i'm really glad to be able to share some of it you know i i hope that it's useful to other people because it's been really useful to me and i think that's why it's so important to for everyone who's in pain to go to therapy because like therapy is stigmatized just like conversion disorder and fibromyalgia are stigmatized therapy everything around mental health is stigmatized it's so dumb you know every single person has mental health problems everyone has it let's like stop pretending we don't and like get to work on trying to deal with some of it. And therapy is a great way to do that. And if you've had a bad experience with therapy, you might've had a bad therapist. It's worth trying someone else. Absolutely. And don't feel like you've somehow failed because you had a therapist, you know, you've had a therapist. Um, I'll, I'll just, I'll speak for myself. Um, When I was in grad school, um, there's just, you know, it's a very stressful situation in general, but I was dating somebody who I, at that point in my life, um, I, I really needed a person who was, I, I really needed to be in a relationship with somebody who was very empathic and not necessarily like, you know, Hey, fix me or whatever, but it's like, kind of somebody who, who we've talked about before that, that can have that hard conversation where you gripe to a person, they don't feel like they need to fix anything. You know, they can, they can emotionally tolerate that conversation, but also understand that you just need to like get it out sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. That's that. Yeah, that's it. And I was in a relationship like that. And I realized that that kind of at that moment, that was probably the first indicator that this isn't, we have a shelf life, but you don't want to accept that. 
And I actually literally did a math problem in my head. It was like, it's like a math tree. It was like, okay, I have this relationship that is not kind of, I, I can't, I didn't feel like I could go to this person with my, with the problems I was going through. Just my, my, not even like, um, even just like kind of like daily stressors. I just felt, I didn't feel a confidence in that relationship in that regard. And then I was like, well, I also have, you know, a couple, a group of research assistants that works under me. And then it's like, I have 15 therapy clients and I'm teaching a class with, it had like a hundred students in it. And just that math overwhelmed me. Cause I was like, mm. okay, I have a hundred over a hundred relationships in my life right now that were, I felt were one way where it's like, <laughs> I, because they were hierarchical in nature. It was people who worked for me. It was students. Um, it, um, these are, these are these relationships where even pr- like, especially professionally and ethically, they weren't relationships where I have that outlet with that individual. So that overwhelmed me so much that I actually uh, sought a therapist because I, I I felt such a burden in that moment. And I felt so overwhelmed in that moment that I was like, I need to talk to somebody. Yeah. Even if I'm not like feeling remarkably depressed or remarkably anxious, it's like, God, I just need somebody to talk to who can hear me right now. And that was really important. I love that. Absolutely. And that's normal, you know, like it happens to all of us. There's, you gotta, you know, everyone always talks about like, you gotta have a friend that you can like really open up to and really talk to stuff about. Sometimes there are things that like the best person you can talk to is a professional, you know, someone who is like professionally able to hear you. Speaking things aloud has power and, and it allows you to like get them out and to help process things, to have a sounding board. It's all so important as humans, that's how we work. You know, I think in, instinctively, we all know that that is part of the human condition. And if you don't know that instinctively, give it a shot, try it out. You know, you're probably going to mm-hmm. like it if you find the right person. Um, yeah, I'm, but it is, it's really hard to find the right person and to feel comfortable and being vulnerable and being open in that way. And I, I you know, as someone who works in the mental health field, I think that your uh, willingness to take care of yourself is so admirable because so many people, I think so many men, um, like society trains men to shut down, you know, and I know it happens to, to women as well, but I think that men are taught, you have to be like the strong stoic, you know, person who never cries and never has a hard time dealing with anything. And if you do, you just got to lock it down and pretend it's not there. It's so unhealthy. It's so unhealthy. And whether or not you're in chronic pain, you know, it's not a good idea. <laughs> so it's always good to let those things out. Uh, absolutely. And it's kind of funny just because of my, you know, my kind of situation, my upbringing, you know, I came from like a good family. I, I you know, I wasn't abused or I wasn't anything, um, anything that would like in and of itself be really make me at high risk psychologically for, mental health um, concerns, but it's, I also came from a family where you didn't talk about it. Mm. And I had enough just like emotionality in me where it's like, 
if I can't talk, I'm going to freaking explode. <laughs> you know, it's like, this needs to come out of me. Like, and it, and it, it's not even like it needs help, but like, like the negative words and feelings need to just come out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, know? totally. And that's how I always felt. And, you know, as a man, um, I always felt like I gravitated towards a lot of female friendships because I felt like females were more accustomed to having that conversation mm. than men's were. The men weren't not even like a, a, a gripe fest, but just like the, how are you feeling today conversation, which I always thought was very beneficial. And as a treatment provider, it didn't, uh, it didn't hit me in the head until my second year on the job, because my first ever clinical position was in like a poor inner city free health clinic. So it's, you know, the people that I was working with had just so many uh, issues, whether it was poverty, um, you know, most people I worked with had some level of abuse in their past you know, unheard by the system because again, they're, you know, it's a marginalized population. They had so many things that they wanted to get off their chest, but they were actually kind of the funnest therapy clients to talk to. And actually I didn't realize how easy I had it then because they just would give you everything. And I, <laughs> I used to joke that the therapy session started in the elevator, <laughs> but sometimes I'm like, okay, we'll talk about it when we get in the room because sometimes it's like my supervisor's in the elevator. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you don't want to tell someone to stop talking. You want to hear them, but you also want it to be behind closed doors. But it's also not as complicated because they feel comfortable enough to talk. So how do you balance that, right? Yeah, totally. And then I went into a situation where I was, you know, dealing with working with a man in a hospital setting and I was expecting that same type of dynamic where people would open up to me and that if they could solve one problem in their life, it was so powerful to them that they became motivated to solve that second problem that then I'm in a hospital setting with a guy and we were in the Midwest, which there's a, there's definitely like an emotional stoicism about that region of the country. Um, sits down in the chair, starts spinning, doesn't say a word and goes, so how does this work? <laughs> and I, it was, it was that, it was a powerful moment. Cause I was like, Oh, I've been spoiled up to this point <laughs> <laughs> because so many people I've worked with were willing to just open the can of worms. And I was prepared for that, but I was not prepared for somebody who was stonewalled, you yeah. know, it was like kind of stonewalling me a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think social norms are changing in really good ways, and there's so much pushback against that, you know. I think that we're entering into this era of communication. Just the internet has changed everything. Like, we have global communication. You can video chat with someone across the world. Uh, you can get on TikTok and see people from all around the world doing fun things. So, we're we're learning more and more that, like, we're all just people, and... We all love our families and, you know, want love for ourselves and all these differences seem less and less important. But then there are some people that are holding on to these differences and saying, no, 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 they're different. We can't, you know, we can't even talk to them. We don't want to have anything to do with them. And I, I, 
I want that to just, it's like a, it's like a tense muscle and I just want it to relax, you know? And I, I want mm -hmm. that to sort of um, drip away from society and for people to be more and more comfortable with being their honest, open selves. Like we don't need to all conform to be the same type of person. You don't need to change yourself to fit into society. You need to find the way to be the most yourself that you can be and find people who accept you. And then you will have real love in your life. You know, that's like how I try to live and it's really served me well. And, you know, you and I both grew up in San Diego where the social norm is like, well, you got to kind of fit into society, you know, mm -hmm. like very much so you have to like be the type of person that fits in here and you have to like make fun of other people to be cool. And yep. in Seattle, it's not like that at all. It's like making fun of other people is mean, you know, <laughs> it is mean, you know, um, it's not cool to do that. And to, uh, just like learn to be more yourself then you then i have found more acceptance here when i first moved here i didn't realize how much i made fun of other people to be cool you know i hated mm -hmm. it when i was growing growing up in san diego and i didn't even realize i i did it sometimes because it was so normal down there and it took years of me living here in, in seattle to to un, undo that like um that behavior because i didn't want to be that way it was just kind of wired into me by how i grew up um, and there's so many things like that in our society Funny thing is, too, I was thinking when you're talking, it's so normalized there that um, it's so normalized there that you bond with people by making fun of each other. So it's not even yeah. always just like, I need to make fun of, um, you know, uh, disadvantaged people to be cool or, you know, socially undesirable people to be cool, whoever that's been deemed to by the larger group consensus but also we need to make fun of each other to bond. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what's weird is that that can be so much fun. <laughs> it is. It really like, is. I'm sure you and I used to do that. Like when I was a kid, the people that I was closest with were the people that I could make fun of freely. Um, it's so funny yes. thinking back on that now. But the thing is like, I didn't realize this till I got older is that there was always a line that would be crossed where you would say something that was someone's sensitivity and all of a sudden you've damaged this friendship. Um, and like, you know, I, I know for a fact that that happened with friends of mine where I, like we would get into one of these like bantering, make fun of each other. And then I'd cross a line inadvertently. Um, and you know, every once in a while, if you really know someone, it can be fun and funny to mock them somehow. Like I definitely, Andy and I definitely make fun of each other. Um, but we know to do it kindly. You know, we, we know each other well enough to know which lines not to cross. And we have the presence of mind to tell each other when a line is crossed instead of just like holding it inside. Um, yeah. So there is an aspect of it that's fun. And there was a part of me that was sad to let it go. Now that I think of it in those terms, that's interesting, but it's been such a benefit in my life to let it go because, you know, it's just not a good idea, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just not a good idea to just make fun of people to, to sound like you're the one who's like, the know-it-all who's cool or whatever you know yeah it sucks it sucks you're, you're insufferable like don't do that I, I think i just replaced it with just debasing myself <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know i was talking to a friend yesterday about how every time you say something unkind to yourself you are reinforcing a pattern of behavior within yourself where you are thinking negatively about yourself and like mm -hmm. i I, I used to do that more than I do now because I have enough going on, like enough challenges in my body um, 
that I don't need to add anymore. You know, I've like trying to learn to be kinder to myself too. Like the, the language you use in your life makes a difference. You know, it really, yeah. it really does. You, you, uh, and the thought patterns that you allow yourself to dwell in make a difference. You have so much control over all of these things that you don't know that you have until you really try to assert some effort over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I can, I, I completely agree. Uh, I, I completely agree. And even just in, in, personal relationships. It's like one of the ones that people say it's kind of gotten popular in recent years is and versus, but like, I respect your opinion and Hmm. where then you get to get in your piece because the problem with you just say, but it basically, and this is something that we were kind of taught in therapy training is the word, but basically discounts everything that came before. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Like, I hear you, but you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Totally. Yeah. And that, yeah, it's, it, you discount people that way. And it's like, you don't think about it, but you discount them. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I mean, if you're just thinking about how you're going to disagree with someone, you're not listening to what they're saying. You know, mm-hmm. try to understand someone before disagreeing with them. For sure. You said something mm-hmm. when, you, when we first started talking that I really want to dig into a little bit. Uh, you yeah. mentioned how you're studying VR and you talked to me a little bit about this when we caught up a week or two ago, and it's so interesting. So, um, this is kind of getting into the future of pain research and pain science. So, tell us about that because it's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so basically, um, pain in a lot of respects, in a lot of respects, relies on our ability to think and pay attention and basically absorb inform- sensory information from our environment. Oh, sorry, side note. Uh, actually, I wanna say something really important that I missed because you said it so well and because it's never talked about is you talked about the paranoid thoughts of having a chronic illness. Mm-hmm. Pain, I've seen it time and time again, creates paranoid thoughts in people. Um, yes, (laughs) because, and it's like people I've talked to, it's like, they're at the grocery store, they're in the parking lot and they kind of start getting worried about, um, you know, you know, what if somebody didn't watch their cart and it it rolled over and it hit me and it caused me to fall over and, you know, it flared my pain or seeing people, get really um, pissed off of people having kids or animals that they feel running around um, and uh, are running around uncontrolled. And that's always a funny thing because it's, I'm not saying, yeah, you absolutely should probably instill some discipline in your children and pets that they (laughs) behave in the public space and (laughs) not cause ruckus everywhere. But um but it's like when you I, when you see that enough times, you start realizing the person is not necessarily mad at the parent. There, there, there's fear there. There's like, this kid's gonna run into me and hurt me, hmm. or this dog's gonna run to me and hurt me. And it's it's kind of interesting where people start having those evaluative thoughts where they start looking at their environment as something that can bring is like a bringer of pain. Yeah, which is a really interesting and 
not very talked about piece with chronic pain. And maybe because some people are afraid to kind of admit that they really kind of start to worry about any situation that they're in as they're viewing it as something that is going to stimulate pain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well said. Um, kind of, and on a related note, it's because the, these are all, these are all thought processes. And the thing to think about, if you just think about um, your ability to think like any sort of fuel source or a gas tank, you only have so much of it, right? Um, sit there and watch TV with your favorite show and try to have a conversation. Put earbuds in and listen to music and try to have a conversation. <laughs> it's really hard because there's really this dominant thing that's that's putting a demand mm. on your thinking abilities and your attentional capabilities. That's what virtual reality in an essence does. So basically at its core, if you're wearing the headset, you're in some sort of virtual environment that's replaced your real environment that you're in. Um, so basically all of a sudden you're no longer sucked into whatever room or place you're in you're sucked into this new environment. You're hearing things in that environment. You might start interacting with that environment, actually feeling bodily stimulations. So what virtual reality has done is just like pain is hijacking your brain, that, ver those, those, that those sensory inputs from the virtual environment are hijacking your brain. Yeah. So it's depleting that fuel source where it becomes much harder to process other things that are happening to you. And they found that that's very effective for pain management. That's called distraction therapy because you're basically being distracted from your pain because you're putting minds to other use. So you're not really thinking about your pain as much. One of the most remarkable things I've seen in that space is I've worked with like I've had people walk up to me with a cane gripping a part of their body to kind of guard it right and all of a sudden they're in a virtual environment where they're swimming with dolphins and they've set the cane down they're not grabbing their body they're reaching they're all of a sudden they're no longer paying attention to protecting themselves they're paying attention to the virtual environment I love that the important thing about that distraction element is it is inherent in VR because a virtual environment has replaced your physical environment and it's put this demand on your ability to think because all those resources are now um, focused on that new virtual environment. So that's a very cool part. The next evolution of that is we need to evolve beyond distraction and we're starting to, to how can we use pain to teach people different coping mechanisms? H how can we teach people? You, um, I had an email today about someone wanted my feedback about how to talk to their research and development committee about um, uh, how can, v you know, does VR pose any risk for having like, um, uh, tricky conversations and communications with people. So that's one use of VR is actually being able to have maybe virtually have a therapy conversation 
with somebody, even though you might not be able to be in the same space as them. That has great implications when you're in a a global pandemic, right? Um, You can also, if you have the really super expensive equipment, you can even take pictures of people and they can kind of like sci-fi hop into a virtual environment. Mm. Um, They're doing that with surgical technology. Maybe like a surgeon pops in and looks at the situation because they're in that same virtual environment and goes, okay, try these things and then can pop out of it. Wow. We can also teach people different things that can really help people manage their pain. For example, as we've talked about pain with like overactive nerves and an overactive nervous system, some of the things that we know are the most effective methods for turning that tension and that muscle and bodily tension into more relaxed states are things like meditation, mindfulness, deep breathing, um, you know, putting stress on the muscles through like um, tensing them and releasing them. Those are skills that are very hard to practice. I mean, um, I, I would guess, I would guess just based on you're a very holistic person. You've, have you meditated before? You know, I've tried it a little bit and I even did a, a meditation with my um, therapist at one point. Um, I really struggle with it because mm-hmm. that's when I, when I try to like quiet my mind that's when my pain signals get the loudest. Um, yep. And when I, this is why I love the distraction therapy thing. Cause I've been doing that to myself without knowing it was a thing. Like I'll, I, I'm much more comfortable watching someone play Mario maker um, than trying to meditate. Like that feels like meditation mm-hmm. to me where I can kind of get into a calmer space. Like if I'm trying to sleep, I'll put a podcast on. Um, if like sometimes sitting in silence can actually be re- like where my pain amps up. <laughs> Because it's like nothing is distracting me from it. So, my brain's just focusing on it. it. It Like you were saying, it just like takes over. You know, it it fills the room. But if you can, like, instead of just being in that room alone, if you can put something else in, in the room with you that is brighter and shinier or calmer or more relaxing or something, then that will fill the room. And then the pain kind of, you know, it becomes easier to ignore. Exactly. And you, you also just uh, kind of steered into my point is, Meditation is very hard. It's <laughs> yeah. effective, but it's not easy to do. I, I, I've meditated a lot in my life and I still need some level of guidance. Virtual reality, for example, can do that because just like you described with Mario Maker, okay, now I'm focused. That's pretty much dampening the noise around me. Mm-hmm. Now we can insert skills and train people in that virtual space which is where it has some of the, the, the most promise. Yeah, cool. Um, I want to try it. <laughs> I, I actually, go- uh, I'll, I'll tell you a point and I'll tell you about trying in a sec. Um, I, I'll tell you, I had two aha moments with VR. So the first time I was at the University of South Florida, who's like one of our partners that I work, I work with some, um, some v- VR developers over there. And the first time I met them, I was sitting next to uh, one of my supervisors and she was talking to the person who ran that lab. And one of his employees handed me a VR headset. It was a space launch. I put it on. The magic of VR is unlike a TV, you turn around and it's still there. (laughs) (laughs) You can't escape it. Um, I couldn't tell you two words of their conversation. Mm. So, 
basically that the learning experience there was, I don't know what just, something happened. I don't know what it is just yet, but something happened where the world just erased to me. Yeah. The other thing is unrelated, but I read an article on uh, what pornography does to the brain. That's kind of a hot <laughs> topic right now. But basically, the, so one of the, the thing about pornography and one of the things that they've talked about with it is expensive, extensive watching or extensive exposure to pornography. And sadly, I'm thinking social media and how um, explicit it's becoming is probably going to have a similar effect. It, it's that um, basically the more people watch pornography, the less they become stimulated over, over, over periods of time, they become less stimulated by um, the real world Mm. and sex in the real world, especially like if they start gravitating towards more things like more uh, fetish and specialized type stuff, which that you're, that's not like just, you know, what most people would experience sexually in life. Right. So the interesting thing about pornography that made me understand virtual reality better is it's very meta. We can watch pornography and we know that it's not the real world, right? We can tell ourselves that and we completely understand it from a logic perspective. Our brain doesn't really understand it very well our brain actually kind of views it like the real thing Hmm. and treats it like the real thing. Interesting. Um, And I came to the realization that article, virtual reality, I read that in virtual reality clicked for me. It's like, Oh, I know I'm in a virtual space, but my brain doesn't (laughs) like like the, like the, the primitive functioning of my brain is like, Nope, this is where we're at now. We're on an island. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And would that desensitize you to the real world? Um, I don't know. Um, that is an outstanding question that we're learning because I'm in meetings I'm in, I'm I tend to be I I I play the devil's advocate role by virtue of the fact that everybody says, this is so great. This is so great. And it's like, I agree, but there's a, but to it, right. Which is, we really do need to learn about why we're using it. Um, good thing about virtual reality is it sort of has a built-in natural time frame to it, which, um, after a while, there's no consensus time, but current recommendations are kind of around half an hour that you should really stop doing it and take a break. Um, So maybe 30 minutes on, 15 minutes off. That can protect your eyes from straining, um, limits the reduction, and it limits the risk of unpleasant side effects like headache. There's something called cyber sickness, which is like virtual reality induced motion sickness. I've had that before, it sucks. Yeah, so, and I've had it once too. It's, It's kind of this phenomenon that's, slowly going away as the quality of virtual reality gets better. Right. But it's basically like um, when the frame, basically when our like vestibular or or balance systems, when the the frame rate of VR 
taxes that. And like I was, I was playing a game called air car, which made me realize why we shouldn't have flying cars because I felt like crap for the next two hours and then went home and took a nap and then still felt like crap an hour later after my nap. It's because I was in a, this car doing barrel rolls and doing all these things that my system wasn't used to. And I got motion sick because of it. That's funny. The one time I got motion sick was VR was the, the like Blade Runner 2049 experience. My friend Jane brought some VR headsets over because um, her husband works in, uh, in development and she brought them over for a party that I was having and we all got to try a bunch of stuff. It was great. Like the high quality headset, we played Beat Saber. It was incredible. And then yeah. with one of the lower quality sets that she had, I, I did this Blade Runner VR experience and I was in a flying car and I felt so sick after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're not ready. <laughs> <laughs> the, so the other thing I, I like to do in meetings is because um, with chronic, and this is just my chronic pain background. When you have chronic pain, movement can hurt. And we avoid things that hurt. We are pretty much like biologically programmed to avoid pain. Um, because again, it's that alarm system that tells us to stop doing that. Some people can have such a strong fear response to it. It's called kinesiophobia, where they develop a fear of movement because they're worried about making their pain worse, right? Mm. Um, that can lead to avoidant behavior. That can lead to people like um, have like a, an extreme level of limited movement and engagement in life activity. Yeah. I totally, I, I just want to say to those people, I get it. You know, I, yeah. I, I think oh, I yeah. have some of that. And that's what I mean by like your biological, with pain, you're biologically behaving appropriate. You're stopping like, okay, I'm in like, you should, you should fear pain. It's the same reason why I don't try to get in a fist fight every day, right? Yeah. <laughs> with anybody who annoys me, we should have some healthy fear of pain. It's the only reason. Yeah. No, yeah. The only reason we should have a healthy fear of pain. Um, but we don't want like uh, the fear to like make our world smaller. Exactly. That's where yeah. that suffering, we start to suffer from it. Mm. And that's one of the things I tell people about distraction is it's like, yes, we should have people doing distraction for every therapy, for every reason we just described. But if you're working with a person that you think is avoiding some other type of therapy to do VR, um, we need to interject at that point. Hmm. We need to find a way to either integrate the VR into the treatment simultaneously, like I said, inserting that skill, because we don't want VR to be an avoidance mechanism either. Very wise. Yeah, I mean, that's tricky. You know, I, I'm a gamer. I I've put over 650 hours into Warframe, <laughs> uh, like 400 hours into Mario Maker just on the Switch. I don't even know how many hundreds of hours I put into Mario Maker on the Wii U. So I spent a lot of time distracting myself. You know, I I watch a lot of Mario Maker videos. I I, I love Survivor. I love uh, watching Love Island. You know, I like to watch stuff that is um, unimportant, where like you don't have to pay attention to the story. And I, as much as like. You know, I used to have a sci-fi podcast. I'm obsessed with TV scripted stuff, but it's not good for distraction therapy for me 
because I don't want to have to focus on something. I want to have something on that distracts me. So, you know, like the reality shows or the Mario Maker stuff or video games, stuff where you can like lose yourself in another world where you don't really have to be present. You're just kind of like coasting through it. That just really works for me as a recharge point. So, like, if my pain level's spiking, I will go into recharge mode, or I call it low power mode, where I really can't uh, express myself or do much of anything, and I just kind of need to distract myself for a bit and let my body recharge. And it's so helpful. But it's also so hard to stop, you know? Like, when when your body's recharged, you're like, well, I want to watch one more episode of something, you know? We're watching Alone right now, which is a great show. People surviving alone in the wilderness. It's very... Um, it's like these moments of intensity surrounded by a lot of relaxing nature shots and something about it is really great for distraction, but it's so hard to not want to watch the next episode, you know? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So learning how to limit yourself and learning to, to distract yourself and then control it on the other side is such a skill. And I just keep thinking about like the, you know, I think the, the best moments that I've had recently were things that I did outside. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, when we were in Tahoe, we got to go kayaking or go river rafting. Um, my first time on a river and like, you know, you and I used to go kayaking together, like surf kayaking in San Diego. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love kayaking and I did it for years. I taught it for years, but I'd never been on a river before. So actually floating down a river for the first time was just this like blissful experience for me. Just, you know, the sun is shining, reflecting off the water. It smells good. There's like beautiful trees all around and it's just like the wind in your face being out on the water the whole experience there's there's no virtual reality there's no distraction that can have that heightened of of a full body immersive experience so getting that is so important you know like getting outside and doing stuff is so important and i do worry about myself and about other people that might um you know, and anyone that has any portion control problems with their distraction, it is a worry, you know, like making sure that you're treating yourself in the best way possible and having a holistic approach and doing as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Oh, a- absolutely. And, and yeah, the portion control is important. And just, just to use the silly example we just said is like just the binge watch. Yeah. I mean, they have mass. I mean, it's it, like, Netflix and 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 Hulu and Amazon Prime, HBO, all the great shows now have mastered abilities to just smash your portion control. Right? <laughs> yeah. it, it, it is a it, it's a reinforcement punishment. It's it, it's it's behavioral reinforcement. Really, it's mm. like it's like I need to leave. It's like they've mastered cliffhangers at the end of every episode. Yeah, Lost you know? ruined us. Yeah, and it's like you just hit that episode. It's like they're basically rewarding you to keep going, and then it's like, oh, and we're going to be off the air for nine months, so we really need to hit you big at the season. <laughs> you yeah, know, at the end of the season. So it's like there's so much competition that they've found that way to just reward you to keep going and going and going. Right. It, it's it's not the '90s sitcom with the laugh track, which like. We've talked about, I think I always have like a silly show too, because when my brain's tired, I don't want to think hard. Yeah. <laughs> like, what's your silly show? Uh, it was that show I told you about Miracle Workers with Daniel Radcliffe and Steve Buscemi. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> um, but I just got through the, the, the second season of that. I, I like having that quick 30 minute silliness. Totally. To oh, counterbalance. Fra- Frasier is so good for that. 
Have you ever watched <laughs> Frasier? I did growing up. Oh, yeah. I love it. So good. I've watched it like three or four times all the way through. <laughs> I always liked Frasier. It's one of those shows that I never watched from beginning to end, but I've seen so many episodes just because it was always on. It yeah. It felt like it was always on. Highly recommend. Um, yeah, it's tricky, you know, <laughs> everything in balance. If there's yeah. one lesson from this podcast, we've talked about a lot. There's one lesson that people need to remember. It's watch pornography in moderation. <laughs> <laughs> because it will help you understand virtual reality better. Yeah. You got to watch that out. way when virtual and augmented reality take over, you'll know to dial it back. <laughs> virtual and augmented reality pornography is coming too. And that's going to be. That's going to be a thing. <laughs> I, I, would, I, I would bet my bank account it's already here. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, we've covered a ton. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure we get onto this episode? I'm sure there was just because, you know, these ideas are so, um, these, uh, like I said, pain is such an interesting thing to talk about. And because it's so layered and then it, it, it really... But it, And then you can kind of look at pain and realize that it, it overlaps with so many different chronic health conditions. One, because pain is so prevalent in so many conditions. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece of it, too, is that just um, so many chronic health conditions have the same issues, whether it's, it, it's a lack of answers, whether it's a lack of effective treatments, where it's a difficulty finding a good provider. I mean, it's just... I mean, that's what I like about those conversations is there's always a takeaway from it when you talk about pain. Yeah, totally. And you know what's so interesting is like, at the same time, there was always going to be a dissatisfaction because we can't cure it, you know? Yep. There's no fix. So, it's so funny, like wh when we talk about this, like, like my, my podcasting instincts, my narrative structure wants there to be a happy ending where it's like, and then we fixed the problem, you know, <laughs> do this, yes. take this pill and you won't be in pain ever again. Um, and because that doesn't exist, that will never happen on this podcast. So, um, I mean, and if it does, oh my God, we've solved it. And that'll be the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But because it's so different for every person and, you know, I mean, even if I, I mean, there may be an answer for some of us. Like if I ever were to get a diagnosis, there might be something I could take that would take my pain away. And that would be a freaking miracle. Like that would be incredible. But I can't, you know, I can't live my life in the expectation of that and waiting for that. I have to live my life now. I think that's really kind of at the core of what we're talking about here is like finding ways to live your life happy and healthy now, no matter what limitations or what pain you're in. Keep searching for an answer, but but live live in the meantime. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I can't stop talking about this. Like, it's why I, it's part of why I started this podcast because it was a topic that I felt like I could talk about forever because there is no end because there is no answer. You know? Yeah, yeah, I agree that there's no. It's like that conversation I referenced earlier where I just told my friends like you you need to go into this just with the knowledge that this may never go away because it's like, I don't want him, I didn't want him chasing, you know, the golden ticket or whatever. Um, and, or I don't want people to think, okay, this is kind of working, but I need to stop doing this and do this now because maybe this will work better rather than 
trying things or doing things in combination. You know, we have a lot of things that work for a lot of people, but I, I, I like to say like, if every, if we had, if there was something that worked for everybody, we'd all be doing it and you could throw the other stuff away. Right. It's, you know, there really is something to be said about finding what works for you yes. in this realm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to kind of plug the therapy too, because we talked about that being important too, is uh, to kind of normalize that is, and this is my background in stigma talking, but it's like, I kind of came to the realization early that um, I'm like the ninth choice that you're coming to. <laughs> You know, people t oftentimes before they kind of seek mental health treatment, mm, they've see. really exhausted other options right. because socially we look at you like, socially speaking, we society looks at you like you're weak or you're damaged or defect, you know, choose any negative word. So we try everything else, including but not limited to, you know, extensive drug use you know for right, example right and that that you know that's all that, that that's a that's a whole nother can of worms that we don't need to go into yeah. right now but that's another colossal misunderstanding right now is that a lot of people use drugs to cope with other things a lot of people you know people who uh, you know heroin is a big byproduct of the of the prescription opioid of the overuse of prescription opioids but excessive alcohol use, cocaine, pick your poison. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that are being used to mask pain. Right. Um, some stuff, you know, and we're seeing other things right now where they're trying to use, but at the same time, they're starting to use, trying to use some things like marijuana or uh, psilocybin as a tool to help treat, you know? Right. So it's, it, it's, it's another thing where, not, there's it, it kind of also shows that maybe there's nothing that's perfectly wrong and there's like nothing that's perfectly right you know exactly yeah there's no answer but there are so many tools you know and the more tools that we can bring to light you know that's part of my goal here on the show is to is to have a collection of things for people to listen to to sift through to find tools for themselves and this conversation today, there's been so many ideas, you know, so many things to try. This is so valuable. I'm so glad that we did this, you know, to like have this stuff to share. I feel like, I still feel like we're just scratching the surface. I feel like there's so much more we could talk about, but I also feel like we just crossed two hours and my brain is going to explode. So, we're going to have to I wrap up soon. <laughs> but yeah. I, I would love to talk to you more. I mean, um, how do you feel about, you know, just opening it up to the listeners if they have any questions for you as you know, as a pain scientist, if we, if I get some feedback coming through the email or comments on the website or stuff on social media questions for you, um, how do you feel about me bringing that to you in the future? Uh, I, I get that. I kind of, that's a good idea. I think that's a good idea for you to kind of pocket in general, because some podcasts that I listen to have like a ask me anything episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm totally into that because Great. I'm going to be honest, like, um, you know, part of my kind of uh, burnout with um, healthcare sometimes, like when I was a provider, is I think I worked pretty well with people, but when you entered the system into the mix, it was really hard for me to manage. Be and not, and I'm not even 
it's it's just so complicated and convoluted sometimes that I think I really kind of got overwhelmed by that. But some of my most enjoyable, like rewarding experiences are just when like somebody I'm Facebook friends with that I haven't talked to since high school has posted something about pain. And I can say something that kind of like you said, I maybe I can, you know, we've talked about so many things today that are important, but even scientifically, we only in healthcare wise, we only partially understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I can't necessarily give full answers to people a lot of most of the time, but it's like, I, I feel like I've been able, I've had times where I could, I, I've, I've been able to like share with people light bulb moments, especially when they felt ignored, which those are like, honestly, my favorite moments, I'd say. Yeah, totally. It's so important. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, I totally feel that. It's like everything that I've been through, I got, I mean, the, some of the feedback I've gotten for this podcast has been really powerful for me because that's awesome yeah because like it makes my suffering it gives my my suffering meaning you know and it's that's been really helpful for me and i you know i'm not suffering all the time i don't i don't think of my pain as suffering there are moments of it that have been suffered suffering you know there are moments of it that i've suffered through the worst moments i think were doctors gaslighting me i think that's actually been the lowest point of my pain journey has been being told that it's all in my head. Um, so yeah. So to be able to put it out there to other people, I think you're kind of saying something similar is like the advice you gave your friend to be able to put it out there. It's like, you might want to expect this because then you can be emotionally prepared for it to happen and it won't be your lowest point, you know, like to be able to give that to someone else really makes me feel better you know it helps me to let go of the i it's a process it's like another tensed muscle that i'm trying to relax this process of letting go of this anger that i have towards the medical system because i'm still i still need it and i'm still working within it and i have a lot of great doctors and right now we're on a good track my primary care is the best i've ever had he takes me seriously and it's really wonderful um so letting go of that anger can only be good for me but spreading awareness about it feels just so satisfying and like like deeply personally satisfying. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to plug or point anyone in the direction of? Um, yeah. Um, I, I think you do this really well on the show. Um, is, is not wanting to minimize, um, anything that you're going through. Um, I think is a very important point. I like I, an example that I can give from my own life. And this kind of goes back to, you know, see, you know, if you feel compelled to seek care from somebody like, I, so I have ADD, I can read you the diagnostic criteria and check every box, <laughs> but I, I used to view, like I used to view my, and this went through my entire PhD process. Viewing ADD is like, you know, I got the light version of psychological disorders. I got, I got, you know, I got the non-alcoholic beer of psychological disorders. It's the O'Douls. <laughs> yeah, it's the O'Douls. And that's honestly how I viewed it. It was something that I could like laugh off, right? I'm 37 years old now. And I finally understand the negative effect this has had on my life. Wow. 
And it's something I laughed off because it just seems so common or so prevalent or so, oh, you know, I got it easy compared to schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. But it's like when I started teaching again and I started teach, I like when, when I teach, I don't like to shy away from the complex stuff. I have no, and that part of that is a, is a deliberate destigmatization effort. Like I'm not going to ask you to expose your mental health concern, but I'll tell you about mine. I'll tell you about my family's because I want, that's how I tell people that's my version of trying to open it up to people without, um, you know, destigmatizing it without like bringing them out of the closet, so to speak. But through that process, I learned like, oh my God, like I've never thought about the negative implications that this condition has had on my life in so many different areas because I just, again, viewed it as the O'Doul's of diagnoses. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, that's why I, I say a lot. I never want to compare what people are going through or compare severity of diseases because it's such an individual journey. And because no matter what you're going through, there's still improvement that you can find if you can, you know, you know find these tools that work for you. So, yeah, this is all, I mean, we're just, we're just trying to live our best lives, you know? And like mm -hmm. being self-aware is a really big part of that. Um, I just thought of one more question I really want to ask you. So, yeah. if someone is seeking therapy for chronic pain and specifically, what do we do? Like, what do you look for? How do you find that? How do you find help? Off top, slightly off topic, but this is how complicated healthcare can be. Um, there is this kind of kind of famous story that came out recently. Is like the top official in the Obama administration for um, essentially drug enforcement and the, like, I think le leading kind of the charge of, of healthcare, uh, of changing healthcare to, to accommodate, uh, to accommodate um, substance abuse into healthcare, his own child, they found out his own child had an addiction and he didn't know what to do. That was sort of like a famous story that came out where yeah. it was like, that's how difficult that this can be. Mm. So um, first thing for chronic pain, uh, pain psychology is a specialty. I can speak on more like VA data, which last to my knowledge, I think it was like 50% of VA facilities had a pain psychologist and their goal was is to get to 100%. And oftentimes you may have like a whole hospital where there's one or two pain psychologists in general. Um, it's a specialty. And, um, but the good news is just because you're not like a card carrying pain psychologist, I'm not, I just have a lot of training in it, but you could bump into somebody like me who got a lot of training in pain psychology. So they have a good working knowledge of it, even though they might not be like a board certified pain psychologist for example. Um, so uh, the first hurdle is finding care. So basically, I would go to Google, honestly, and search for pain psychology in your area. Mm -hmm. And then, um, obviously, might as well go through the reviews, see if, you know, the, the tough part about reviews 
um, that the tough part about review systems is the two camps that are most likely to, to uh, give a review are the people who have something to say. So it's like the elated people and the pissed off people. Yeah. <laughs> Same way it's hard to buy a TV on Amazon. It's because yeah. you have people who are gloating about how good it is and the people who say, I opened the box and it didn't work. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Um, so might as well read some reviews if they're available and just kind of see what people have to say. See if they felt heard. You know, yeah. See if they have some of those desirable characteristics that you're looking for or that you might have felt uh, are missing from your current healthcare experience. The next hurdle is, do you have insurance and do they accept it? So that's when you should start calling offices and seeing if they accept your services. Some places um, have it easier now where you might not even need to call them, but you might just enter your in, like some brief information and they'll tell and they'll have you enter your insurance information too, to see if they accept it. So that's kind of a useful feature. It may be disheartening a little bit because Therapy is expensive, like all healthcare. Um, but basically, finding somebody that, that takes your insurance. Yeah. If you do not have insurance, start looking at either free us. Uh, some care is usually better than no care. So start looking into some some sliding scale options like free health clinics or community health clinics. Um, you know, look for. Uh, you've said in a previous podcast, teaching hospitals, sometimes that can be more affordable because uh, you're working with somebody who's getting training, who's, who has some experience and they're supervised by a licensed individual. But oftentimes that type of care is more affordable than, um, than other sources of care as well. Some of those institutions will actually subsidize your care if you can prove that yeah. you can't afford it. So it's worth yeah. asking. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially because healthcare is so expensive and insurance isn't a given. Yeah. Uh, um, also, when you start treating somebody or when you, let's say you, okay, now, this is an important part that you might not hear as much. When you come to, okay, you're going to walk into a person and we're going to start talking about the deep, dark secret skeletons in the closet. <laughs> That's not easy to do with somebody you just met. If you feel guarded early on, that's okay. That's a normal feeling um, because why would you tell people the stuff that you feel the most sensitive about? Or there's often a lot of shame and embarrassment associated with health conditions. The stuff that you're scared of, the stuff that you're ashamed of, or you feel bad about yourself about. That comfort might take some time to come. So, um, it's okay to feel uncomfortable early in treatment. And I can tell you as a provider, ex-provider, I guess, um, some of my favorite moments in treatment were when people would come to me at session two or some, session three and say, well, you know, I kind of didn't tell you the full story. Or, <laughs> um, you know, I said this wasn't a problem, but it actually is the problem or a yeah. problem. Yeah, I've had that happen more times than I can count. And as a provider, I never looked at it as you're lying to me or I can't trust you. I really kind of viewed it as, all right, now, like we can get down to business almost, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. So that, that comfort step is a big one to establish. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's all really good advice. You made me think of a couple things that I've done that worked. Um, one of them is Share them, please. go to your, uh, if you have insurance, go to your insurance provider's website and do the find a provider thing where you can see, you know, these are the mental health, um, these are the facilities that offer mental health services that take my insurance. Call those places and say, hey, do you have someone that specializes in chronic pain? Mm-hmm. Um, and Or if you have a friend who's in therapy, Say, hey, where do you get your therapy from? And if it's like a um, like a, a local group or something, like a therapy group, call that place and say, hey, do you take my insurance? Do you, t- do you have someone that deals with chronic pain? So, um, yeah, any way that you can get there is good as long as you get there, you know? It, exactly. And it does get complicated, too. Sometimes the first therapist isn't the right one for you. Oftentimes, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes but, you don't know for months. Sometimes you have to yeah. like talk to someone for months to really find out if they're the right person. Yeah, exactly. And 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 also the good thing about websites too is like a lot of, you know, they'll tell you on their website what they specialize in. Now, here's where it does get complicated because the um, you know, there's different types of treatment for different conditions and sometimes people might respond to one thing but not the other. That's why sometimes the first one might not work per se. Yeah. Um, but it's like I said, losing, I think losing faith in the process early on is one of the things that kind of, that can kind of hurt progress because I've seen people where they'll admit that they felt like they've wasted years not seeking help. Wow. Yeah. The, the also the, this is making me think about how science is always changing too. You know, if like you haven't looked for help in a while, Try again, because stuff is different now. Like, wh- yeah. how, how would you categorize awesome the difference? Point. How would you categorize the difference in how pain is approached scientifically in the medical field now versus mm-hmm. when you first started studying it? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, I was at a talk a couple years ago, um, and this this physician um, said when he was in, you know, when he was a young physician, he basically would. Um, uh, when they were at conferences and he'd see people talking about pain, it'd be the person who's advocating for acupuncture or physical therapy or, you know, anything that isn't like surgery or prescription related almost. He's, he said like, we viewed it like we tolerated these individuals and we'll sit through their thing and then we'll get to the real medicine. Hmm. And now as like an old war horse, he's like, I was completely wrong you know, and basically one of his slides is like, we've been treating chronic pain the same way for 5,000 years. He's like, if you go back to like ancient Chinese and other Asian cultures, what are you seeing for pain? You're seeing opioids. You're seeing other sorts of medications that like anti things that have anti-inflammatory properties. You're seeing yoga, you're seeing meditation. You're seeing acupuncture. Wow. You're seeing exercise. Fascinating to think about He's that. Like, basically, all we've done is condensed it into like a clinical setting. Um, wow. That is a little mind-blowing to think about because that makes perfect sense. It's yeah. crazy. And that's the thing. That's one of the things there's been such a paradigm shift is opioids happened because they were so – and I told you this, Jesse, before – the opioid movement happened because they were prescribing opioids in the eighties for chronic cancer or chronic pain due to terminal cancer. 
So the idea was addiction was not an issue. Um, because this person is terminally ill, we're, we, we are in the role of easing their suffering. Well, then there was kind of the great lie that addiction wasn't an issue. So that allowed opioids to basically become a catch-all uh, prescription. It became, and the problem is that sort of seemed to have this effect where it diminished other, for, like it, it downplayed other forms of care because we could just provide, you know, we could provide you these medications. 25 years later, all of a sudden it was like, uh-oh, we've made a huge mistake. Mm. It's not that opioids are completely ineffective. It's we never scientifically and medically didn't do the due diligence of finding the best use cases. Like, what are the subpopulations of pain that opioids work for? Instead, it was a blanket where it kind of went to everybody, right? And that's when it became a problem. And it also seemed to slow the growth of things like physical therapy, psychotherapy, acupuncture, and these other forms of care. Um, these alternative, we call them like either mainstream or some types like yoga and acupuncture, like uh, complementary and alternative forms of care, yeah. things that are effective, but not necessarily mainstream health. Those are starting to come back now that opioids are off the table for so many people. So the so care is becoming transformed as we move away from opioids as the dominant form of treatment. Wow! So pain care is changing. Yeah, it's so interesting. I wish that I wish that our society would, you know, I the danger in op opioids is so real, but there is a way to use opioids as part of a treatment regimen as part of a holistic regimen that can be very helpful for some yeah. people. And I, you know, I, I, my experience with that is with tramadol where I would take a tramadol once, maybe once or twice a week. Um, and, or, or less than that, even like, you know, once a month or something. And every once in a while it would like really, really help me be functional and it would last for days after. And I was lucky because it was something where if I took it multiple times a day or every day, it just wouldn't work. It wouldn't help. So I wasn't ever really at risk of being addicted because there was no positive out outcome for taking it more often for me. And I, now I'm at the point where I use cannabis every day almost, you know? Like, I never used opioids anywhere near as much as I use cannabis. And I was just thinking about this. It's like, if I was taking tramadol every day, I would be worried, you know? And, like, my doctors would be worried. And here I am, like, taking a substance almost every day. And we don't really understand it that well. I just know that it's the only thing that really helps. My doctors tell me it's, like, way better for me than opioids would be. And they, like, I really encourage you to use weed more often and use opioids less often. I'm like, all right, that's fine. So, that's what I'm doing. So, yeah. So, I, I don't know. Like, I, I just wish that, I wish that we could use all the tools at our disposal in a non-stigmatized, um, professional, thoughtful way. But like we can't because there is like such a risk of addiction and because the medical system has so many biases and, you know, all that. It's, it's so complicated. It, the whole thing is just so freaking complicated. <laughs> and, and, sometimes, and sometimes legalities too. I mean, you're in a state where uh, rec sure. recreational marijuana use is legal. Yeah. I mean, when I was in the Midwest, um, 
you know, where basically like if you tested positive for marijuana or anything that wasn't prescribed to you, they had to yank the opioid prescription away. And, um, but you also, that, that's just a good example of how the systems change. At least when you're in a state where it's legal to use marijuana, all of a sudden the physician apparently, I think, is in a position where they can kind of lax those standards, where if mm. you're in a place where it's illegal, you can't say that. Like you can't yeah. be in Kansas and say, um, use opioids less and use marijuana more. Because you're wow, basically telling people to, you're telling your, you're telling people you treat to break the law. You can't do that. You know? Yeah. That's so funny. Like I just, I never put that together, but what my doctors. I'm speculating, but it makes no, sense. No, you're right. You're right. I think because before, before marijuana became legal here the, and before tramadol became classified as a schedule one drug, my doctors were giving me tramadol like it was no big deal. And, and it completely changed overnight when they reclassified the drug legally and then marijuana became legal. And my doctor's like, well, we really don't want to prescribe this anymore for you at all. Like I haven't gotten a new prescription of tramadol in, in at least two years. Um, like I don't have a doctor right now that has ever prescribed me tramadol. I got it from someone that I don't even see anymore last. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so that is so true. And now it's just adding to me like questioning, um, like, what is the best thing to do? Because the, the laws are in the way of the science. You know, the, my mm -hmm. doctors are telling me the best thing to do based off of the laws in my state. You just made me realize that. I'd never thought about that before. Because, like, uh, opioids are really off the table now. And they're really encouraging cannabis use because it's legal and the other is not. And, and honestly, I, I, the state of the science is tricky. Because most studies there's mixed evidence, like basically there's mixed evidence on whether or not marijuana is effective for pain. Right. And, um, there's a, but there's a lot of caveats to that because one is in studies with prescription marijuana, they're often giving uh, pills with basically you're taking away the ingredients that might make you feel high. And so, and there, you know, there's, Sometimes you get non-standard dosing, like different studies have different doses. Um, you also got to factor in different types of pain. If, if, if weed's relaxing your body and you have a lot of muscle tension, it might be more effective for that sort of thing. And um, so what I'm trying to say though, is there's mixed evidence with like prescription, like kind of THC, like marijuana tabs with the THC taken out. But Anecdotally speaking, from people I've worked with, I've never been in a position where I can advocate for it, but I can say anecdotally, when people have told me they've smoked marijuana, it's worked. So, and that's, it, that makes sense to me because opioids kind of operate under that similar principle is they're not acting on your pain, but because you're, you're, feeling high, you basically, um, you, you don't mind the pain as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, totally. That's a big but, part but of it for sure. Yeah. But at the same time with opioids, one of the reasons why I don't want to use that as like a push for opioids is they've done studies when people use opioids for a long period of time, like over a year, their pain actually gets worse. Mm. And that makes sense too, because if you've ever been around somebody who has like a high uh, level like 
uh, heroin addiction, for example, sometimes those people, like I, I've had people in my family that uh, who've, who've really struggled with heroin addiction when they're in the really worst parts, it's like, they look like kind of they're withering away, you know? Mm. And it's like, so you would kind of ask at that point, you could, when you see the effects of like long-term opioid use on a person, you would start making sense. Okay. That's to me, then it all of a sudden makes sense of this is probably why their pain is getting worse because the person might be becoming unhealthier overall. Yeah, totally. And you don't see that with cannabis use, you know, like if you think about the movie train spotting, you know, those were not, stoners (laughs) stoners <laughs> they, they were not stoners no no it does and, and also like there is a lot of research that suggests that elements of of cannabis are anti-inflammatory and that you know there is a lot of medical research being done that points to its medical efficacy um being very positive for outlooks for the future so you know i it's so weird like this week i really got in my head about my own cannabis use of like am i addicted to cannabis i like kind of freaked myself out a little bit but I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's definitely something to like keep on the back burner, but I'm also, you know, I'm in a place where we're trying to find answers. I'm going to know what my copper levels are doing within the next couple of months. Hopefully if we can get this to work, like get through all the red tape with the medical system. I mean, it, definitely within the next year, I should know. And I don't use weed on good days. You know, it's like, I need it right now. Hopefully I won't need it forever. And I don't use it on good days. And that, that to me feels like a good sign. You know, I don't, I don't use it recreationally anymore. Like if, uh, I mean, you know, it's COVID, so no one's having parties. But if someone was having a party with, uh, with weed, if I, you know, I, I don't use it because it's around anymore. I use it because I need it for pain situations. And, you know, it, it does, there are times where I feel like it doesn't touch the pain at all and I'm just high and I feel a little bit better about my pain situation. There are times where my pain turns off to agree, or, or turns down, you know? Um, there's also times where my pain turns up when I use cannabis. So, I don't really understand it, you know? That's, this is what really gets to me sometimes is that it feels inconsistent, it feels unpredictable, but it has the potential to be so helpful in certain situations like today right before we started recording i took a couple drops of a thc cbd tincture that one-to-one ratio of thc cbd gives me more of like a body high than a mental high and that is just so good on my pain and right now i'm having one of the best reactions to cannabis that i've had in a while of like taking it it really made me feel better but like yesterday I tried some new products. We got these like chocolate covered weed almonds. <laughs> so I ate an almond and I got real stoned and it didn't help with my pain. And I ended up having to like lie down for a while and just like get through the pain, have one of those, you know, distraction therapy moments. And that the distraction therapy was easier because I was having a really nice high, you know, and that's not what I'm seeking when I take cannabis is a nice high. I'm seeking like this body high that I'm feeling right now where my brain feels clear and I feel like I can do stuff. That's what I want. And when it happens, it's just like such a breath of fresh air. It gives you a little reprieve from being in this constant pain. And it's helps me to feel more relaxed and helps me to, um, you know, get through the day a little bit easier. And it makes all the mental gymnastics to keep myself going easier. And it's an invaluable tool on those days. So it's again, so complicated. I feel so lucky that I have it as an option 
and I'm trying to check myself with my relationship to it and make sure that that's in balance and healthy. And, you know, I think that it is, but I'm not sure because it's, I'm living in it and I, you know, I, there's this thing that I can do that helps alleviate my pain. So I'm going to do it, you know, and, and that's tough. And I honestly, I've heard that from a lot of people and I've also seen situations where I feel like a lot of providers that I've known, I'm just, I'm just going to say outright, I'm not going to speak to it either here nor there because I'm not in a like professional position to advocate. So I just, this is one of those times I have to plead, like just bite my tongue on this and plead the fifth. But I can tell you just from my experience that even with providers that I've known, their views on marijuana, I think have been actually more uh, colored by their own socio-political cultural beliefs yeah. than, than rooted in, in science. Yeah. And I've heard some like cite science, but it's also science like they would say, yeah, you're right. When you're high, you shouldn't probably shouldn't go drive a car. Yeah. But that's not the conversation that we're having. Right. <laughs> like, I don't drive anyway. I can't drive safely because of my mm -hmm. symptom picture, you know? Like I, yeah. I start spasming or lose control of things and you don't want to be driving a car in that situation. Like sometimes no. I have uncontrollable brain fog where I just like can't, like I suddenly won't know where I am or what I'm doing. You don't want to be in a car, driving a car when that happens. So I, I haven't been driving for quite a while now and um, it's because it doesn't feel safe. So yeah, it's funny, like using cannabis makes me feel more normal. Like right now I feel like I'd be more able to drive a car than normal. Like my brain is working more normal right now because of the cannabis than it would be because of my pain. You know, I'm not going to drive a car. I don't drive, you know, I don't, as a rule, like I don't drive under the influence of anything. Good rule. I highly recommend it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's all, it's also complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dude, this has been so great. Like this whole conversation has been so awesome. I really, I feel like I could talk to you for hours more. I'm going to, insist that we don't because it's been two hours and 40 minutes and oh, this is going to be unwieldy i mean this is my new uh my just like doing you know preparing an episode takes longer if it is longer to get it out so i gotta i gotta wrap this up um we will have to do this again so listeners out there email me majorpainpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions questions for fowler send them to me um if we get a bunch or, or if, uh, Fowler, if you have any ideas in the future of anything that you want to share, anything you'd think would be helpful, if changes are happening in pain research, pain science, I want to be the first to know about it. So you have an open invitation anytime you want to be on the show. Um, you let me know. Or if we get questions from people, if we have enough questions, we'll do another episode. Or if it's like a one-off, I'll, I'll email you and ask if you can, you know, send me a response that I can share on the show, anything like that. Um, I feel like you're just su such an amazing resource for this community uh, to have someone who is actively researching exactly what we are dealing with, who's a friend that we can talk to. Like, what what a gift. Like, so exciting. It's so cool that this is happening. I'm so grateful. I I'm glad you appreciate it because sometimes when I get going... Like sometimes I think when I get too like anecdotal or too technical, I, I get self-conscious like, mm. cause I don't want to sound like I'm like crapping on the person because that's like never, ever my intention. <laughs> so right. that's good. Well, this is the place um, to, to do it. You know, like this is the perfect environment where understanding the technicality of something that is causing people to suffer 
is so helpful you know like if you understand the mechanism of a thing you can get you can get closer to finding that spark of inspiration that helps you find something that actually works because it's different for yeah. everyone and if you describe the mechanism without context it can come across as stigmatizing it really can absolutely and i appreciate that you've been careful to not speak in a way that is diminishing to what anyone's going through and i i can tell that that's the intent it's really hard to do and i hope that you know i i try to do that as well i hope that we've done a good job if we haven't let us know um if there's any way to you know adjust the way that we're talking about these things to be as inclusive as possible i'm super open to that so yeah i, I want to say something else i think because i think i said it off camera but when we talked but not when you said it on camera about like when you felt like you were falling away from friendships or our friendship when you were when you were struggling yeah it's like yeah you know it um i wanted to say too it's like i in you know i want to represent hopefully other people who've been in that situation and say the person who felt like they felt like because I, I told you it's like oh i didn't feel like you because you you felt guilty like you'd done something wrong and it was yeah. like oh i never kind of felt that way i just kind of felt like my life took a turn your life took a turn and there was like a, a drift and it was like it was never intentional but when you have this strong force in your life you can feel like you're doing something wrong and i want people to think that like like i think you did a good job of saying it's like sometimes you just need to communicate with people like hey yeah. that was a rough month like <laughs> sorry yeah totally oh, a rough I, couple months sorry i was distant or, yeah i really like, appreciate you saying that too sorry to interrupt go ahead oh no but or sometimes even if you if you want to apologize and you feel like you need to sure go ahead at the same time don't feel like you owe the world an apology either i tell that to my aunt all the time she has bipolar disorder and i'm like you don't necessarily owe the world an explanation you know if you meet somebody you don't just like owe them an explanation or for your bipolar disorder like you know, sometimes you're just allowed to live your life, <laughs> you yeah, know? Totally. I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, yeah, you know, my, up until today, my experience of it was that, you know, we were really close friends. We moved to different cities and we, oh man, it's been way too long since we caught up. You know, that's exactly how I thought about it until we, I had this moment today of you saying, you know, that you didn't actually know what I was going through before I left San Diego. And that tells me that I didn't communicate that to you you know and that is that's shocking to me because that was such a hard time for me and you were you know like you were a really close friend and you were i remember you coming around and like checking on me and a lot of people didn't you know a lot of people just kind of disappeared from my life i think you were actually um, i mean you were one of the only friends who i felt like was still making an effort to have a friendship and the fact that i didn't effectively communicate to you that the reason that I was like not reciprocating as much as usual was because I was dealing with this like health crisis. So that's what I feel bad about is that I didn't communicate that to a really close friend. And I, I did myself a disservice by doing that, but it's taking it until now to develop the self-reflection tools to understand the unintentional behavior that being chronically ill causes. Cause there's a ton yeah. of it. This is why there is, some of the stigmas that are in place are because of things like this, like the stigma of, you know, people who are in chronic pain being insufferable, you know, like, oh, I don't want to deal with this person because they're just complaining all the time, you know? Um, it's not until you become someone who is like, has something to complain about all the time 
that you like be- you become that person you know and you're like oh man i get this now and like i see how any any like frustration or uh what's the word um uh impatience that i might have had with someone complaining to me about their health problems in the past now i'm like oh shit let me take a moment and listen to you because you know this is important like this is important to you this is painful to you and this is legitimate to you and for me to not listen to you is minimizing and i didn't understand that until it happened to me Mm-hmm. Um, but on the same token, I also didn't un- understand until recently that like, when you talk about it all the time unchecked, if you're not checking your relationship with your own complaining, you probably are doing it to a level that might be overwhelming to the people close to you. And that can be a problem with your relationships. Both sure. sides of this are 100% legit. And yeah. as the person in chronic pain, it's really easy to feel slighted by the people around you who aren't taking you seriously. But it's also really hard to recognize that you're maybe driving them a little crazy by whining about it, you know? <laughs> and mm-hmm. and I, I, I can say this as someone who is the whiner, you know, I like I'm I'm not I'm not accusing anyone of whining. I'm not like saying that anyone with chronic pain talking about is whining. I'm the person who's doing this. I've had to recognize this in my relationship with Andy that I need to check myself when I'm talking about it because I need to bring it up when it's important. I need to not talk about it in the moments where it's not important, you know? Or if there's any ever any time where I can leave it out of the conversation, um, it's good to do. It, it can be helpful to me to not focus on my pain in that moment and to not bring someone else into it with me. But when it's serious and I need to bring it up and I need to talk about it, I have to express that. It's so important that I do that. Both of these things can be true, you know? Um, so, it's I, it's something that I've been working on is to try to, um, you know, not bring it into the relationship as much while still making sure it's okay for it to be there. You know, having a place mm-hmm. for it, but having that place be sort of contained, because if it's just loose and like waving its arms all over the place, it's like, it's like it's slapping someone else in the face constantly. You can't do that with your, with your pain. You know, it's slapping you in the face constantly. You have to learn how to caress someone else's face with it. You know, does mm-hmm. this make sense? Like, am I making sense right now? Now I'm just getting stoned because this tincture is very powerful so now i'm like a stone <laughs> guy talking about important shit and that's not necessarily a good combination <laughs> I, I resonate with what you're saying though because for some reason i actually kind of feel and this is probably something i need to check myself on sometimes feel more comfortable communicating with people based on what's going wrong than what's going right <laughs> totally totally this is so important i just had this conversation yesterday my friend alexander came over and we had a really great chat and we were talking about this in relationships with uh, um, if you are pointing out the things that you don't like to someone, but you are just silently enjoying the things that you do like, then the person doesn't know what you like. They only know what yeah. you don't like. And I, they feel that like you relationship. Yeah, totally. We, I think we all have. And they feel like you're just constantly pointing out what you don't like about them. It's like, why are you with me? So, it's so important in those moments when you have a thought of like, wow, I really love this person. I love the way they made me feel just now. You don't have to say it in the moment because you don't want to break the moment necessarily, but it's important to say it, you know? It's important to say it. It's important to like take the time to say, hey, in this moment earlier, you did this thing. It just made me feel so good and I love you so much. Like, take those moments all the time. And when you're in pain all the time and you have a clear moment, 
say to the person that you love, hey, I'm sorry if I'm hard to deal with earlier today. I'm sorry if I was hard to deal with earlier today. I was in so much pain. I wasn't thinking clearly. I wasn't quite processing what you were saying. I'm, if I was dismissive, it was unintentional. I'm really trying to take those moments to say those things to Andy. And it's really, really helping because you don't know what the people closest to you are experiencing of you, what you're experiencing. And this, you know, like this conversation is proof of that. Us coming and having this conversation, like what, 12 years since we last hung out, recognizing mm-hmm. this huge thing that we didn't know we were even speaking a different language about um, when my health crashed and I stopped kind of participating in social activities, you know, man, I just thinking about what that would look like from the outside if you didn't really understand what was happening and it would look mm-hmm. bizarre. It's like, why, it would look like I just didn't want to hang out with you anymore, you know, which wasn't what mm-hmm. was happening at all. So, it's just so important to, to know, uh, to, to, to make yourself known, I guess, to make yourself heard mm-hmm. with the people you care about. I, I completely, I completely agree. Yeah. <laughs> we got to stop talking. It's been almost yes. three hours. But fi- fi- final plug. Uh, I-, I searched in Seattle for virtual reality in a healthcare setting. I was unsuccessful in my attempts. Jesse wants to try it. So if you're in the Seattle area and know anywhere that's doing it, also reach out to him via email. Yeah. Let's use this podcast to crowdsource some VR experience for me. So <laughs> use it for good. Yep. Yeah, no, for real. Like if you're out there and if you are doing any sort of game development with VR for any sort of distraction therapy, medical use, hit me up, come on the podcast. I'll try it out. I will promote it for real. <laughs> Let's make this happen. <laughs> Hell yes. <laughs> All right, man, this has been amazing. I mean, I'm so, yes, thank you so much for your time. You and I just need to, you know, we just need to talk more often. That's the problem. If we, yeah. if we only talk once every 12 years, then we can't stop talking. <laughs> Correct. I can't stop talking either way. Yeah, but totally. This only we're gasolining this fire by time. <laughs> totally. Well, man, this has been awesome. Fowler, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This was really fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith and Sonny Roberts, and our $25 per month producer Steve Cavanaugh. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition and gifts at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.